Welcome to the Barrow Media Podcast with Luca Hey everyone, and welcome to the Mirror Media Podcast today. Um, and we're joined by uh, Jode Singh, who goes by the Twitter account name. Um, uh, it, what's your Twitter account name again? <laughs> it's a Jung Nihung. Jung Nihung. And what does that mean exactly? Uh, well, so Nihung is sort of a term used since the time of the 10th Guru, Guru Gobind Singh tour. It's a Persian word, means crocodile, used to refer to Sikh warriors. And Jung means, uh, well, I always thought of it meaning two things. One meaning like sort of idea of Jungian archetypes. The other sort of uh, just Jung meaning war. Okay. So, um, yeah, just, it just rhymed. It sounded cool. Just I mean, it does sound cool. It sounds really awesome. So, uh, I mean, uh, Jode here is kind of, he's a younger, he's a younger guy. We, we did interview him on Round Pundits a couple months ago, actually a month ago maybe. Um, but he is very deeply entrenched, knowledgeable, and committed to Sikh Dharma or Sikh Dharma. Um, and he practices it, talks about it. He addresses the, the current misunderstandings of both non-Sikhis and Sikhis have about their traditions. Um, so, so Joe, uh, let's find out a little about yourself. Uh, why don't you tell everyone kind of what your background is and, and how you came into really uh, focusing on the tradition and history. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, so I'm Joe Singh. Um, I am an American, uh, born and brought up here. Uh, my parents moved from India. Um, and I guess I'm from a Sikh family. So I was kind of raised, so when, when I was younger, I wasn't really that religious my parents yeah. weren't really religious at the time um but around i think when i was later in middle school um like my early teens i guess my parents started you know they started they started getting more awareness and they wanted us to learn a bit about our traditions right. so um just started going to a sick school learning a bit more about the traditions uh particularly three fundamentals which were uh gurmat sangeet which is the sort of kirtan how sick musicology um, Boli, which is Punjabi and also uh, speaking Punjabi and also the written script of Gurmukhi mm-hmm. and um, Virsa, which is sort of the history or what we also refer to as Itihas. Um, so these three things intersected, um, just discussions with my father, he's a big impact and just, you know, trying to learn a bit more, trying to go because sometimes when, what you learn is very superficial level, right. um, especially at the textbook level. Oh, you learn, okay, Sikhism is basically Hinduism plus Islam, right? And it's like, okay, you kind of realize that's not really, that's very surface level and you want to go deeper. And so you just ask these questions, these questions take you to more questions and, and so on. So it's just a thing I've been doing as a hobbyist, um, hopefully one day. Uh, so I work in a professional industry, but hopefully sure. one day I'm able to pursue this more, uh, in a, you know, legitimate matter, I guess. So but yeah. when, uh, when did you actually start going to Sikhi school? And what is like, Sikhi school, how does that work? Is it like five days a week? Is it one day a week? And, and what's kind of the, the setup around that? So um, that I started going when I was, uh, I think, I think yeah, I think eight actually, but I started getting really into it when I was uh, 11. Okay. Um, but so they have, the way ours is structured is it's a, it's a Saturday school. Usually there's Saturday school or a Sunday school. Mm-hmm. Um, and they usually have either it's a building of their own ours is a building of its own a lot of them are also buildings like where gurdwaras are okay um, there's curriculums out there that basically teach have all these things structured there's different grade levels 
Um, so we had like exams and homework assignments and, and like blocks. So one block was a Gurmat Sangeet where you learn instruments, uh, that kind of thing. That's, I mean, that's really cool because I feel like that, that, that sort of setup is, which, I, which also in some ways explains to me why a lot of uh, Sikhs that I've met are also very into the music. They can either play tabla or the, the harmonium. Um, they have a, a sense of, of musical style that I find like a lot of, I mean, a lot of Hindus don't have, right? Uh, but it's, I think it's really interesting that not only do you learn a language, I'm assuming you learn both Gurmukhi and Punjabi, right? Yeah, yeah. So to differentiate techniques, people think they're the same thing. Gurmukhi yeah. is the written script. Mm -hmm. um, technically, Gurmukhi is used in Punjab to write written Punjabi. Yeah. Um, but it's in, in the Sikh context, it can actually be used for any language. Um, okay. Usually it's used for Braj, Sanskrit. It's even used for Persian, Farsi. Um, but yeah, and then we also learn like Punjabi. But I actually learned Punjabi more on my own. The school's focus was more on Gurmukhi because okay. when you're reading the, the prayers or reciting from the scripture, uh, basically for the purpose of reading that. Um, yeah, okay. So now you're like, what, 24, right? 24, 25? I'm, I'm 23. 23. Okay. So you haven't, I thought, uh, which is really, it's, it's awesome. I mean, it's, it's just interesting to me because I think when I was 23, which was 17 years ago, uh, you know, internet had just kind of started coming out and we maybe didn't have the necessary, either the self-confidence or I didn't have the self-confidence and, or the, the ability to, you know, go out and just start talking about this stuff. And it's, it's fascinating because you have a pretty big following on, on Twitter. You have a few thousand, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, the, the ability to have that kind of impact and engage with your views, I think is not only, I mean, it has a certain level of, I mean, it, it's kind of weird because I feel like the, the social media gives both uh, bravery and cowardice uh, because it, it, lift, it lets you expose and talk about your views like freely, openly, and, and, and with, with strength behind it. But at the same point, you, can, you get to hide behind a veneer in some sense, and some people wouldn't say the, say the things that they say on social media to other people's faces or in, in, in polite companies, so, so to speak. But I, I mean, what I see on yours is much more educational. It, 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 it does take a lot, I think, to come out and state your views and engage in a dialogue about it. How have you found that experience? And, and why did you decide to start like the, the, make the focus of your Twitter to be like on, on Sikhi history and, and Dharma? Um, yeah, so, yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I've always, Twitter is an interesting, interesting platform because it, I think the greatest thing and the worst thing about Twitter is that it's very open, right? Like on an Instagram post or a Facebook post, it's your curated circle um, and only, and you can delete a comment if you don't like it. On Twitter, it's you're out in the wild. So I think what I found useful was just through interacting with Twitter, like I think what even the perspective I was given in my Gurdwar, my Sikh school, it was a very specific perspective. And then like you go to another place, a very specific perspective. Through Twitter, you know, I'm able, I was able to sort of interact with people from all over the world, different religious backgrounds. So it taught a lot about like, so some things, right? We learn, um, and some, some of these things I know, like my dad always taught me um, because he lived in India and he had a very rich experience there too, from moving around different places. But like, so Singh, a lot of Sikhs do not, they think Singh is like originally a Sikh name, but it originally, like, it, there's a lot of different, you know, warrior groups in India that use Singh. It originally came, came with the Rajputs. 
And right. so like, that's something that you wouldn't know unless you, if you just stayed in your little bubble, um, you'd kind of, you know, you wouldn't be exposed to that history. And right. So, I mean, that's right. Because even, you know, Singh comes from Simha, right? Yeah. So it's, it's uh, and, and many of the, the people before even the Rajputs, you know, would have the name like Simha as part of their, their name. Like, you know, you'd have a big Narasimha Pallava in South India. And there's a few people in North India that have, uh, keep the name Simha as kind of like this warrior lion kind of thing. And I think the tradition continued with the Rajputs and the, and the Simhas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think it's that, so that was the one thing um, that I, I really liked about Twitter. Sometimes it's getting a bit unwieldy now because mm -hmm. people, it's just like, I think once like at, at a bigger following, there's just like so many aspersions cast like, oh, this is the real motive. This is the real motive. And that's probably, that's the only reason really I stay anonymous is because, um, my, my real life, my friends in real life, they don't really know about all this. Sure. Because uh, I don't really discuss with them. Why not? Um, their interests are not really aligned. Okay. I guess. Uh, maybe like a few I discuss with. And like, it's just most of my friends, my circle, even my sick friends, their interests are sort of elsewhere. Sure. Uh, so it's kind of like a thing where, you know, I, I just, just like keeping them separate. And yeah. so, um, and also because there's also like I said, at that big of fun, I've heard, that's how I was joking. Like there's some people call me an ISI agent. Some people call me a BJP IT cell. Some people have said I'm sitting in India. Some people have said like, I was like, if I got paid by all these parties for doing all these things, like I, I would love that. <laughs> right, right, right. You wouldn't but, have to have a day job. Yeah, exactly. But um, so, I mean, that's, that, that's the one thing. But yeah, I do, I do like Twitter. I mean, I think it, it has its uses and I think, um, the one thing that now I'm kind of realizing is that sometimes it's good as a networking tool, but then some of the actual conversations are best held in through other mediums, which is, you know, podcasts and articles and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I agree. I think, I mean, Twitter is great to, to build something and give little tidbits, but you can't really have, I, I haven't, I, plus I'm not a very big person on Twitter, um, either on my personal side or through Meru. Um, I just kind of use it to, you know, shoot out stuff i don't have a very good following i don't really care but it's just i find it like it's better to do podcasts or conversations because you're able to really get your point out without having interruption necessarily and or uh aspersions like you said thrown at you because the context is full hopefully in the podcast yeah, yeah. um so i i guess by uh getting into the meat of what we want to talk about is where where and how and what milieu kind of did Sikhism start? And what, you know, like, uh, like most people would know, it starts with Guru Nanak and in somewhat, in, in this Guru sense, it ends with Gobind, but the continuation is, it continues with the Granth Sahib. Uh, but how does the, the, the Dharam itself start and why did it start? Yeah, um, sure. So the, I guess the context that Guru Nanak is in is I mean he was born at a time when Punjab was ruled by the Lodis, uh, the precursors to the Sultanate precursors to the uh, Mughals, and yeah. he also the later part of his life he saw the first Mughal emperor, um, which is kind of interesting in a way because there is this sort of parallelism between the first Mughal emperor Babur and the last like I guess notable infamous emperor Aurangzeb and Guru Gobind Singh. Right. Um, but I think that the sort of Punjab was very rich at the time in a lot of ways. There were a lot of religious traditions. 
in, sen- in the sense of there were a lot of heated, strongly contested religious traditions. Um, like we know, for example, that there were, you know, uh, those who followed Sharia very, very strictly or mm-hmm. uh, those who followed caste norms very strictly. But there was also a very interesting, there were a lot of subsets with like the Nath Jogis, very prominent, especially in Gurunanik's writings. We also have the, um, a lot of Sufis. So it's this sort of motley of all these assorted religious groups in Punjab. And I think Guru Nanak's came in, and also, of course, I forgot to mention the Bhakti movement, mm-hmm. uh, which was definitely, you know, it was across India, really, but a lot of it happened to be concentrated in Punjab. Like, for example, um, uh, like Kabir, he, he's from Uttar, what is now Uttar Pradesh, mm-hmm. but a lot of his writings happened to be popular in Punjab. So all of these things, I think, fostered a very intellectual culture. People were starting to look, you know, there's a paradigm shift, right? Because within the sort of Indic uh, idea, Tarim is sort of, it's sort of isolated within the Indian subcontinent. And then when Islam came, that sort of disrupted the whole worldview in a sense. Um, So this was sort of a time to see how these two paradigms could sort of make their, how they could coexist, in which way could they coexist, in which way could these two theological worldviews clash uh, along with these other, you know, very mystic interpretations. Sure. And so one thing I, I always, I always uh, have discussed with my friends that Guru Nanak, I think, was definitely one who walked along the Santka Marag, meaning like the path of the sons. Mm-hmm. He took a very mystic view of spirituality. Mystic meaning he, he quite um, literally decries any sort of physical, you know, ritual markers of religion. He basically de-emphasizes these things that we consider, you know, these, um, any, any sort of ritual, any sort of, even the idea of religious identity. It's sort of lampooned in the sense that, okay, what you, you know, what you identify as is less so important than what you actually do. There's a focus on Guru Nanak, his, his, he viewed, um, meditation and spiritual actualization, mostly through the the, the uh, method of singing, because that's how he, that is how he practiced. But singing, reciting, uh, kirtan, um, these were the things he thought were the most effective in getting sort of spiritual mukti, or that's the Punjabi word for moksha, right? Versus you know, particular penance to a specific you know religious ideology or um, and so on. So one, yeah, and one big example of that I would say is like one of the big debates Gurunanik had was about the the role of a householding life. Mm-hmm. So there's a text, the Sid Gosht, uh, which basically addresses these dialogues Gurunanik had with the Kanfata Jogis, who were Jogis who would renounce the world, they would go live in the forest and all that. And Gurunanik is actually he's agreeing with them in the sense that he's not saying that he's on he's on a completely different spiritual theological paradigm but he's saying okay the spiritual goals you want to achieve you don't need to go out and you know renounce and do all these rituals of piercing your ears and doing all that sure. you can just do that like living a household life balancing the two um so yeah that that's what i'd say i mean it's interesting because I, that that tension right between the jogi mentality and the householder mentality in some sense is as 
as ancient as the, the Dharam itself, right? You have the Pravitti Marg and Nivritti Marg, right? Mm -hmm. That the path of, at least in the, in the Hindu context, um, or even in some sense, you know, the, the, the Vedantic and, and yoga context, the, the Pravitti Marg is the path of, of, of the householder, of being in the world and connected to the world and doing all those things. And Nivritti Marg is the path of, of breaking free and, and, and kind of the aesthetic path, right? So that's a, that tension, which I, I think was, it's, it's inherent not only in the Vedic and throughout the Vedic period, but all the way down to modern time, you, you can see that even probably with, with Nanak's conversation with the Jogis. Mm -hmm. and, and, and just on that note, I mean, you're saying that Nanak was um, more mystical, but did he not take quite a few pilgrimages across uh, northern India during that time period? and go to various locations? So he took four udasis. Yeah. Uh, udasis meaning he, he travels. Mm -hmm. And so in his journeys, um, so he took one to the south, one to the east, one to the, I guess, north, I'm not sure how that's specifically. Kashmir, and one to, maybe, yeah. Yeah, and then one to the west, so all the way to actually Mecca. Okay. Um, so I wouldn't say they're pilgrimages in the sense that, uh, I guess the word tirat is often used, or hajj in the Islamic sense. Yeah. Um, because he, it's not said that, you know, Gurunanak actually he critiqued the spiritual concept of a Tirith, meaning like the idea of a pilgrimage for the sake of salvation. Mm -hmm. um, but he definitely visited a lot of different areas, major areas in, across India. So Jagannath Puri, um, he went there. He visited, I mean, Makkah, so that's like sort of Islamic center. Um, now, do we have uh, strong historical sources to indicate that, that they that he probably went there? Or is that a local tradition? within Sikhism. Yeah, um, so I mean, there's, so, so there's some, there's some, um, so some people say like, oh, Gurunanik went all the way to like Italy and he went to America. That stuff is, there's not really, that's kind right. of here to say. Um, but the first mention of these sort of Udasis is, so there's two, there's two main sources. One is the Janam Sakis. These are like literally the life stories. So they're mm -hmm. a, a sort of corpus of literature that is dedicated literally to the life of Guru Nanak. Technically to all the Gurus, but there's a lot of them specifically dedicated to Guru Nanak. Uh -huh. um, and there's also the writing of Pai Gurdas. So Pai Gurdas is, he's a contemporary of the fifth Guru. So he writes about, um, you know, Guru Nanak's travels at all across all these places. So, in, so some, in some sense, uh, these texts were compiled a hundred, maybe anywhere from 50 to hundred years after Nanak, correct? In, in, in a similar kind of way that, the, the, the Gospels were compiled about 100 years after Jesus. Um, yeah, so the Janam Sakis, I think, were compiled a bit after. The Baigurdas Vana were not there because they were compiled, uh, I think, yeah, actually, well, yeah, by the time of the fifth Guru. So, yeah, I guess you can say like 70, 80 years after. Okay. Um, yeah. and, and so uh, in the tradition, he's traveled to these places. And now was this, I mean, uh, there's there's always this, this this conversation I think that that happens is was Nanak at the time uh, creating a new dharm or uh, not dharm but sampradaya in some sense or maybe dharm it depends on how you view it and or was he still was he within the tradition um, of of the Hindu tradition trying to reform it in in what he saw was a Yes, this is a good question. Um, it's one that you know people have been debating for a while. Uh, I think I, I personally do believe that Guru Nanak was setting the foundation of a new thought. Um, 
Sikhtaram. In the sense that it was at least a new... So some people say the thing is, I think there's a lot of, like some people say, okay, you know, Guru Nanak was abandoning the, the, the Thadamic paradigm, abandoning the, par, the Abrahamic paradigm, creating a new paradigm. I don't exactly agree with that. I do think the path that Guru Nanak was creating was Thadamic, mm-hmm. um, like Gautam Buddha. But I think it was a recontextualization of Thadam um, within, you know, within what he saw as, you know, things that were essential to spiritual practice, like that, that mattered within spiritual practice. So one example is, um, and, and I guess you can say this crystallized in the fact that Gurunanak, after going about all these places, um, he kept a poti, which is like a, uh, basically the um, a small booklet, which was actually composed of all his writings and hymns. And this is what was eventually incorporated in the Guru Granth Sahib. So he also collected writings from other saints. These were incorporated in the Guru Granth Sahib. And he founded a community in the last uh, few years of his life in Kartarpur. So this was a self-sufficient community. So this was after all his adasis. And, this, and basically, well, after he founded this community, he gave over the Guru Gurgadi to mm-hmm. uh, Lena, who became Guru Angadir. Um So, yeah. Okay, so... What what was the reconceptualization of Dharam that he uh, found to be very foundational to Sikhism at the time? I mean, what was what was he kind of reforming? Uh, I guess a better way to say it. not reforming, or what was his viewpoint that was different from what was before to to, to kind of force him to create or set the foundation for new Dharam? Yeah. So I mean, I think he. So for one, I think Guru Nanak was very interested in resolving this tension between the two theological paradigms at the time. Okay. So he, the way he set about doing it is very similar to how various Bhagavati, um, I would say you have to, there's a, a let me, about, about the two uh, paradigms mean Islam and Hinduism? Yeah, Islam and Hinduism. Okay. Okay. Um, in, in the sense that like, so he, he took, a, like it's the same way the Bhagavati did, this is something that's very similar to the Bhagavati movement where like, let's say Kabir, he says, and he contextualized Allah within the sort of same omnipresent, um, I guess, force that like uh, Brahman is. is. So I think that that's one sort of philosophy. The other thing he did was he really focused, I think, on distilling spirituality to the mystic experience. There's a lot of texts where he specifically calls out, um, he, he, very socially actually he's very socially aggressive against certain aspects of the community um, of the time which include caste mm-hmm. um, include his critiques and uh, extend to sort of the clergy the okay. idea of these established clergies um, they include the practice of uh, untouchability and um, so all of these things i think they were little, and another, and so another point um, is his, the sort of resolving of how Guru Nanak advocated for this sort of, to, to Guru Nanak, there's not, I mean, it's ironic because his son actually went on to found a sort of ascetic pathway. He went on to become a yogi, mm-hmm. in a sense. but he viewed spirituality as it wasn't a tent, it wasn't a duality. There's this, you know, you can, there's this one main goal and you can get it through this one simple way of the mystic experience. 
and the other things are more or less um, distractions or you can say just um, red herrings, I guess, to that point. Sure. And so I think all of these, and the, so what I want to mention is all these, I think, crystallized in the sort of, I think if Guru Nanak just went about and he just did these things, um, it wouldn't really, he would just be another sant, right? In, in right. more than the time. I think what, what the revolution thing Guru Nanak did was he sort of formalized all these in a very, and funneled them into, you know, his establishment Kartarpur, that Sangat there that was living by those establishments and the Gurgadi, which said about, you know, socially implementing these um, reforms in a more systematic way. Right. So, I mean, I, I, I'm going to try to give a little bit of pushback here because I think it's interesting, especially in that time period. So you do have, you know, quite a bit of different traditions kind of being founded, growing, and developing at that time, right? Not only do you have the Sikhi movement, you have the movement from the Namanandis, you have the movement from, you know, like uh, Kabir's, uh, uh, the Kabir Panth, you have movements from, you know, in South India, you have like, you know, the, the Dasa movement, and then the, the, the Vaishnavite movement, and then the Shaivite movements, all these different communities, right? But within each of these different communities, they kind of are laying out their own tradition of sorts and and they're and they're and they're doing similar kind of work right like they're 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 fighting back against the practice of of jati at that time and how it was being practiced and untouchability and they're all talking about the social messages and many of them are also talking about things like breaking away from the pure ritualism right you know like for, I mean, for example if you even look at someone like Shankaracharya, you know his whole entire budget go with him starts with you know uh you know, budget Govindam, Govindam budget Mudamate, right? Like, he talks about, like, how people just focus on grammar or ritual or this or that, and how that's not the way to 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 have the experience of Brahman or, or Mukti or whatever. It's a mystical way. So what would, I mean, in, in, in that sense, is there, would you say that it's separate from these kind of various traditions as much as they're separate from themselves? Or is it something entirely different? So I think that, so that's one interesting, so yeah, so I, I think I understand um, what you're saying. So, I mean, one thing is that I don't think there's alterity for alterity's sake, meaning like there there definitely are parallels. There are definitely, the Ramanandis, for example, they're really good, the Kabir Banthis, they're very yeah. good examples of groups that were parallel and that were seen as parallel, yeah. uh, actually. And so, like, and Guru Nanak himself, he actually, so in one, um, he talks about meat, eating meat, yeah. and the sort of hypocrisy. So he cooked, according to the Janam Sakhi, he was cooking a deer during a solar eclipse, and a pundit comes and reprimands him for it. He says, this is inauspicious to cook the meat. Uh, meat is, you know, so on. Um, it's not, not good. And Guru Nanak actually gives an argument from the Puranas saying, you know, at one point, I think the, the in the, the yajas, the the gods, dipped themselves, they you know cooked the rhinoceros and right. uh, they ate the, its flesh. So he he definitely is engaging. He's not like he's not like I'm you know isolated and just in. And that's sometimes I think the modern sense that he created like this thing that was totally disconnected. He was definitely engaging with these communities. It was definitely something parallel. And the other thing I would say is that I think. At that time, Guru Nanak's time, Sikhs weren't like, it's not like, okay, you are a Sikh and yeah. you are no longer a Hindu or you are, 
like you were because his, his lifelong so this is something that's very interesting is his lifelong companion Mardana he, he was a Muslim yeah. but he but he wasn't like so people say like okay how could he was he Muslim or did he convert to Sikhism and it's like he's both because actually his descendants they're Ababis they actually so they do Kirtan but they identify as Muslim and so a lot of his followers they were I mean at that time there was no Sikh crystallized Sikh identity sure so yeah so I guess um in that sense, during the time of Guru Nanak, his establishment of Kartarpur, it would be very similar to like what you see with Kabir Panthis, Daddu Panthis, where you know there's a group associated living together with similar practices, um, but they haven't like made a major ident like de- declaration of their identity that's completely a break from their previous identities. Which is, I mean, I think it's, I think this is a very unique. I mean, not uh, not the, the Sikhi. Oh path, wait, and let me uh, let me add one more thing actually. Sure. So. Even today, if you go to, if you know anyone from Sindh, this yeah. is why, yeah, so if there's, so Sindh people, Sindhi people, people, I remember Ranveer Singh, the Bollywood actor, people were very confused because he's like a Hindu, but he had a Sikh marriage. Yeah. And so he's a, actually, he's a, it's what's called a Sahajthari or Nanik Panthi. So they were folks very prominent in Punjab at the time, at the time uh, who, you know, they identify as Hindu. Um, so they do Hindu, you know, marriage ceremony, rituals, all that. But they go to the Gurdwara, and yeah. they and so I know some Nanakpatis. They've never been to a mandir. They just go to Gurdwara, and right. but they're Hindu. So that's sort of, I guess, maybe can give an idea of what people. Same with Kabir Bantis. That's what a Nanakpanti would be. Which I think is very interesting. I think this is the, the the common issue throughout probably all of the Dharmic traditions, right? Whether you're you're Sikhi, Jain, Buddhist, Hindu, you know, Shakta, Shaivite, a lot of these, whatever term you want to put for various groups. You, you see so much kind of overlapping, right? Like for example, um, a lot of Jains, um, even though they're, you know, they, they partially consider themselves to be entirely different, but at the same time, they have, they consider themselves Hindu, right? But I think this, these ideas of religion as being uh, a definite category of particular sets of beliefs or particular rituals and you only have to focus on that is very kind of it's kind of an anathema in the in the Indian in, or the Dharmic sense, right? Because there are people. I also know quite a few um, um, Hindus that go to you know Gurdwar a lot, even though they they don't identify as Sikh. They go to Gurdwar a lot because they 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 see the same unity of of like thought, so they might participate in those things. And so, I mean, part of me is always feels like difficult to talk about Indian or Dharmic uh, traditions as separate religions in the Western sense. It, it just seems very, very incongruous to talk, to use that term for this. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah, so I think, yeah, so the, there is definitely this weird, it's so, again, it is so hard to talk about these things because a lot of these categorizations were sort of crystallized, I guess, in the colonial period, and they kind yeah. of removed a lot of the diversity of thought that was sort of the blurred lines, so to speak. Right. Um, but yeah, so I, I definitely agree. I think the, there's one aspect, I think, to Sikhism that sort of crystallized the religious identity, which is the Khalsa with Guru Gobind. So. Okay, so so we'll get there because I think that's important yeah. too. So uh, still uh, focusing on Nanak then, 
he lived for about what 80 years right that's uh is that correct or was it yeah, yeah i think around that. yeah so after him so he he created this new path that was you know at that time they haven't called it they haven't called it sikhi yet right it was kind of just um the 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 non i mean what would they call it at that time what did they call so it? well t well technically they were six because okay. but they were six in the sense that like you know, the Guru Shishya tradition, right. Guru Sikh tradition. So he was the Guru, and those who followed him were, they were called, in, in the literature, they're called Guru Sikh. And did guru. he have a Guru himself that he claimed? No. No. Okay, no. so he was kind of like what we call a Swam Guru, a Guru that came up on his own and, 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 and had an experience and an issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The experience he had was the, so at one point, he was meditating, and he, they say he disappeared in the river Nadi. And uh, he came back after three, four years, and he sort of had this revelation, which was um, said, "Nakoi Hindu, Nakoi Muslim." Okay. And then oh. after that, he after that he penned the Japji, the the Mool Mantar, and the Japji Sahib, which were like his sort of foundational writings, and that is how his spiritual journey more concretely, like okay. I guess. Started. So, yeah. what was he before he he became a guru? Well, I mean, oh, what so would he, yeah. So he's still he's still referred to as a guru throughout, like through, even when he was like born. Oh, okay, no, but like I mean, there before that experience, I would say. Okay, so let's say before that experience of of leaving, of, of disappearing into the into the river and then coming back. What was he a young boy when that happened? Was was he already? Married? I mean, what was his life? Oh, yeah, I mean, so he was so he was a so he was born to a Khatri family. Um, so he, that's a mer, mer, mercantile cast. Um, so in, so he was, his dad was a shopkeeper. And so he had a lot of interesting spiritual experiences, I think, um, growing up, like he went to a madrasa, he went, he was enrolled in a, um, you know, to learn Sanskrit. He, the, the tradition says that he, you know, passed these very quickly. Uh, he learned these things very, there's a Gurdwara actually in Pakistan where his school originally was. And um, there's all these, you know, some of these miraculous events about his childhood mm -hmm. that are spoken of. And there's also stuff like, for example, at one point, his, this is a very famous Saki, his father asked him, he said, you know, go do some business. Um, I give you this, this many rupees, go, you know, I, I want you to take up the ways of, of our, you know, way of life. Yeah. And he goes and spends that money. He sees a group of um, basically people in the forest, which was a, assortment of people from the outcast people from the sort of uh yogis many ascetics and he decides instead to put that money towards uh starting a community a small kitchen for for these groups this group of people and the tradition is that uh, i've actually visited the gurdwara that marks that spot is that he was there for several a few months just you know running that kitchen feeding these people um and then he came back to his father and his father's like you know what did you do with the money and he's like i did the true business of you know this and is um, this is this the foundation of bunger this is so yeah so this is like the this isn't so this is something where the the lunger is actually attributed to the third guru okay but this is sort of seen as okay this was you know a a precursor to even that official establishment of lunger um because lunger was actually then it was iterated upon with the second guru but the third guru is sort of who really established it and made it what it is uh today but yeah so there were and there are all these sort of stories like there's one where he's counting in the shop and he's he hits 13 theta and yeah. he just and he just keeps saying theta 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 and his people are like why and then he's like 
tera tera, like everything is yours, referring to like right. the divine. So there's all these um, stories, but this river in the Nadi, this happened, I think, when he was like a young adult. And this, right. after this event, is when he goes on his adasis, which take up most of his life. Um, he gets married. He, he also gets married. I think he gets married after this event or maybe before. Um, but yeah. And so, and then he, after the Udasis, comes back, establishes Kartarpur, meets the new guru and so on. So, so and how much of the, of the Guru Granth Sahib is attributed to him? Um, so I don't have the exact numbers, mm -hmm. but he is a, he is one of the bigger contributors. So the way you know it's him is that every Shabbat in the Guru Granth Sahib, it starts with a um, Mahalla. So Mahalla means house. Okay. Mahalla Pella is the first house. So it means like the, it, the first Guru. Okay. And so what's interesting is that he always, because he would sign his poetry as Nanak, mm -hmm. all the other Gurus actually would also sign their poetry as Nanak. Um, so you will know when you find out the writers, you see from the, okay, Mahalla Panjava means like, the first, the fifth one, the fifth guru. So, but he would sign his name as Nanak because in the Sikh tradition, the view is the gurus are the same, the light is the same. There are 10 different bodies that, were, that was passed on. I see. Okay. Yeah. And then, so um, he, I mean, he, he, he passed, he, die, he dies or attains samadhi through, through natural means, right? Um, yeah. And then he, the, the, who's the second guru at that point? Guru Angadev. And that's his son. That is the, huh? The, uh, that is the what? Sorry. Uh, that's uh, uh, Nanak's son, right? No, no, that's not no, that's not Nanak's son. He was a so he came from a different clan. Uh, okay. He also came from a mercantile clan. So he was a devotee of Guru Nanak, who you know eventually, um, after a few years, Guru Nanak, you know, there's store there's Sakis also how he their the relationship was established, the sort of you know tests that Guru the Guru would give, and so. Um, that's how it was passed on the Guru Angad Dev. Now, did, I mean, did Nanak have children? He did have children, yeah. But and were they somehow connected to the Guru tradition or not? So his children, actually, what's interesting is that they, so they kind of, so it, at the time, they kind of went against what Guru Nanak said, um, in the sense that one of them, so one of them, Prithvi Chand, he, he sort of just did, his own thing. Um, he he kind of got into a conflict with Guru Angadev. The other Sri Chand, he actually founded an order, his own order, uh, called the Udasis, who are actually ascetics. They, they pretty much look exactly like yogis. Um, so there was actually an interesting, historically it's interesting because there was a tension at the time between like these six, the, like, who followed the path of the Gurus and these Udasis. And that eventually came to a reconciliation under the fifth guru who sort of you know they reconciled and since ever from the fifth guru to the tenth guru the dasis and six you know mainstream six what we can say they've been very closely intertwined okay and that was that, that relationship was there you know until for a while until the colonial period where the sort of the dasis they sort of faded away from the mainstream but, um, but there's still like there's like uh, ripples of them right there's still yeah there's still ripples yeah. of them um a lot of the so a lot of the, uh, there, there's some Udasi Deras in Punjab. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's a lot of people who are now taking interest in them because like now there's more awareness of this history. Like people didn't even know what the Udasis were and people, and there was a lot of propaganda that, oh, you know, cause they're, they're very heterodox. They're not like typical Sikhs. Okay. Um, they would not follow the Khalsa, Khalsa religious. They were kind of, you know, the blurred lines, as you would say. 
Uh, and there's even within the Adasis, there's like, there's some of them who cut their hair and shave. Um, and, you know, they, 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 uh, yeah, and they wear dreads and all that. So they look very similar to sort of these joggies. Right. And there's some of them who they wear, you know, they keep their hair long, but they don't wear a turban and they're still not Khalsa. So there is even, there, I guess for the mindset of, okay, you're either a Sikh or a Hindu, they kind of just didn't, people didn't really get what they were. And so right. uh, they've kind of been sidelined for various reasons. But yeah, the ripples are there. I think actually there's more, way more awareness of them in the last, I'd say, five years. Okay. Way more awareness of them. Um, because there's a lot of good historical research, especially going from coming from the UK. Yeah. A lot of awareness and people are trying to understand and sort of appreciate them in a historical sense. But yeah, at the time of Guru Nanak, they were kind of like running parallel, but they weren't like, you know, uh, friendly. Like, sure. They weren't, they weren't mainstream sense. So after Nanak, you have uh, uh, Guru Angad. Um, and what's kind of his background and what did he bring to the, the tradition that Nanak started? Yeah, so Guru Angad, he is the one who, he sort of, he, was, he took another step in, standard, in standardizing longer. He actually, he started his own establishment, uh, I forget the exact name, but so he also, you know, he wasn't a traveler. So he started, you know, having actual congregations in specific areas. Uh, one thing people don't know is he actually started the tradition of Mal Akaras within the six. Um, what is that? So that's like uh, wrestling, uh, okay. basically wrestling Akaras. Mal is wrestler. So yeah. he was a wrestler himself and he started this, you know, within Sikh congregations, you know, starting the idea of, you know, physical fitness and all that. Uh, Lunger was, it was starting to become more concrete there. His wife, Mata, Mata Kivi, she was known for serving uh, devotees a lot. And he also wrote a lot of compositions. And he basically continued on the path that Guru Nanak uh, started. And he also uh, standardized Gurmukhi for writing. So okay. Nanak so wrote, he wrote in this script, Landa, Landa, which is a sort of precursor to Gurmukhi, but Guru Angad sort of standardized that more and made it what Gurmukhi is today. So at this time, um, you have Nanak's writing, but you also have other people's writing, right? You have the contemporaries like the Kabir, you know, uh, you have uh, you know, uh, Ramdas, uh, a bunch of different people that were in, included into the Granth Sahib layer. Were they included at this point? Or did that happen much later? So I think Kabir, I think Guru Nanak got his writings okay. um, on his travels. The other Guru, so the, he had a poti where he kept all his writings and he also, I would assume, got, included Kabir's writings. Guru Angad contributed to that poti. Then the next Guru contributed to that poti. And that was sort of all culminated under the fifth Guru. Okay. Who, um, who He's the one who did the formal process of bringing in a lot of the Pagats. Um, uh, some of the parts, the poets, and the Guru's writings, uh, categorizing them and producing the Adi Granth, the okay. first edition of the Adi Granth, which is now a um, the, the Guru, what would become the Guru Granth Sahib. Okay, then, so yeah, that, no, no, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, that, that, that yeah. That. Okay, so after Guru Angad, well, which is, I, oh, I just want to uh, throw out a little like interesting tidbit, right? Angad is also the name of in the Ramayana the son of Vali, who was known to be a great wrestler in the Ramayana and warrior. So it's in interesting how Anga uh, in Sikhi tradition started the first, you know, uh, 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 the wrestling uh, arenas. Just yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but, okay, so after Anga, uh, who's the third guru? Uh, the third guru is Guru Amardas. 
So okay. he, he's known for being, he was very actually old. So he's always portrayed with a white beard because when he became Guru, he was very old. He was older than Guru Angad. Okay. And so he started, um, so he formalized the concept of Langar. He's the one who Akbar, the Emperor Akbar met. And Akbar, when he, when he met him, he was told you have to sit in the, you have to sit down and eat Langar with everyone else before you meet the Guru. And uh, after that, he, you know, the Guru was, he was pleased with the Guru and he, he gave him some land grants uh, across Punjab. Okay. And so that, that's one thing is institute in Sri Lanka in a more systematic way. He stopped, he, he spoke out uh, against the practice of Sati and also against the practice of Parda or veiling. Um, so these were sort of some reforms that were attributed to him. And he also started the Manji system, which was basically small Sikh organizations, the decentralization, if you will, of, of the Sikh Sangat. So sending, let's say you appoint, um, a manji in like, you know, South India, one in Kabul, mm-hmm. and the, they would hold, they would be, that person would, they would basically administer the local Sikh Sangha there. They would all report back to the guru, but he, he started this uh, system more. And, and he also wrote and contributed to the guru. guru, guru and at this time, uh, even though the, the, so far the three gurus we talked about have been based out of Punjab, where was the reach of the, the Sikhi tradition in, in that at that time, uh, it was it was pretty big. So I mean, the three gurus were based in Punjab, but there, you know, they had there were sangats um, across India and mm-hmm. and ranging up to Kabul. Um, so there was a big reach. Um, you know, and the the gurus kept in the Manji system is a lot of what allowed them to sort of expand the reach uh, a bit more. So this sure. is something interesting. Is I was just reading that apparently Bihar, before recent times, had a very strong non-ekpanti population interesting so that's so i mean I, I, i'm assuming still at this time period which is probably the early 1700s maybe right uh, uh no this this time period the, the 1500s i'm sorry yeah because he was the nautical 14 something right 1469 yeah 1469 yeah so this would probably be like mid to late 1500s yeah, yeah. so it was still relatively a small community right i would assume yeah, I think Guru Amardas is when it started getting, you know, this. it's a big, I guess, moment because Akbar said to have met Guru Amardas. So that's the time where they start expanding more. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, but I think Guru Ramdas and Guru Arjun is where the Sikh community starts to become more well-known. So do we know what Akbar thought about uh, this tradition at that time? So we don't have any, we don't have any Mughal... Uh, renditions. All we have is that, you know, um, he came, according to the tradition, he came, he had Lunger, he was, you know, pleased with it. And I I think at the time, most, I think most emperors, especially Akbar relatively, they had uh, religious grants to, uh, so it's assumed that he, Guru Amar Das, got one of those religious grants. Um, Now, was, so Akbar started his own religion too at that time, right? I forget the name of it. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah. Yeah, but was the Sikhi tradition involved in that? Because he tried to include different communities. No, it was not. It was not included at that time. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, okay, so we have uh, uh, the third guru, Guru Amardas. Um, who is the one that followed him? Guru Ramdas. Okay, and can you can you tell us about Ramdas? Kind so of like- he was the one who started. He started a tank in what is um, now Amritsar. So that was land that he had bought. 
And so he started the, the process of what would become the Harmandar Sahib or Darbar Sahib, the Golden Temple. Yeah. So he, he built that tank. Uh, he started the makings of a city um, in that allotted land. And um, that was one of his big contributions. He, he did write a lot of hymns. Um, he sang a lot. But the, he's most, I guess, known for starting the solid institution building, you know, building a city. Right. A sick city, a sick center. Um, and yeah, and so at this time, I don't think there were any noteworthy um, interaction with the Mughals, but it start, one did start, this, the Mughal interaction started with his son, who became the, next, the fifth guru, Guru Arjun Dev. Okay. Now, Arjun's like the, after Nanak, really like the, the really big one that is talked about by a lot of historians and, you know, generally the population. So let's talk a little about, um, uh, uh, <coughs> sorry, Guru Arjun. Can you, can you give us his background and was he related to any of the previous gurus or was he kind of developed on his own? How did, how did he come into it? Yeah, so he was the son of Guru Ramdas, the fourth okay. guru. And from this point onwards, the guruship, so his, so Guru Ramdas, his clan name was Sodi. Uh, from this point onwards, the guruship would stay within the Sodi family. Okay. Um, so... Guru Arjun, he was the last, I guess, major contributor to the, so he compiled the Adi Granth, which is okay. all the hymns he edited, you know, by Gurdas was his, his uh, scribe. So okay. he basically, there's a lot of evidence too to show how, you know, he took all these um, various writers of the time, he assorted them, spent a lot of time compiling, making this compilation and, and formalizing with the Adi Granth scripture. Um, he was a very prolific musician. Um, so he continued that, you know, tradition of composing and, and his own composing and um, singing. He built the Harmandar Sahib. So the tank was, you know, built out by, the beginnings of the city was built out by Guru Ramdas, but Guru Arjun actually created the sort of, um, the city, the, what is now the Harmandar Sahib, uh, that temple. And he became, he came on the radar. He's most well-known, I think, because he came on the radar of the, of Jahangir. Yeah. So at that time, um, cause he was doing, they were doing six, were doing Prachar. They were pretty, starting to get pretty well-known. They were doing Prachar on, um, to, you know, as I mentioned before, the Sikh identity hadn't really crystallized as a, you know, separate thing. Sure. So, so Jahangir in his own autobiography talks about there's a, a there's an Arjun near Goindwal. He, you know, many Hindus follow him, but even some Muslims have followed him. And this is a great outrage and we need to bring him into the purview of Islam. And there's also a writing by a prominent Naqshbandi, which is basically a, a more Orthodox Sufi group at the time. Um, so Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi. So he also was, he wrote letters to, some, some say this was probably the sparking moment. He wrote letters to Jahangir saying, you know, the infidel Arjun, he's committing a great atrocity by, you know, teaching the, you know, that teaching the you know, Muslims in the area, he's misleading yeah. them. He must be dealt with. And so um, his ex, he was executed by the Mughal emperor. He was told to convert to, you know, uh, he was pretty brutally tortured. He said, you know, we'll let you out if you convert to Islam. The Guru refused. And um, he, he, he passed away in this way. So, so 
Let me ask, um, John Gere, was he a fanatical mogul leader according to uh, the Sikh tradition? Or, or a fanatical, uh, I guess, fundamentalist Muslim? Or was he bowing to pressures from the, the, the mullahs and the muftis at the time? So Jahangir, he has an interesting, I think, relation. It, so there's, so this actually, the, the interesting thing is, with there's so there's so many reasons for the execution of Guru Arjan. Because mm-hmm. at one point also, the, there's Jahangir's rebel prince Kusra, who's, um, so he rebelled against him, and he comes to the abode of Guru Arjan. Guru Arjan applies a tilak on him, like in a respectful way. So this yeah. is also seen as, you know, a political element. There was also one of one of the Guru's family friends. Um, Chandu, Chandusha. So he was, you know, very, he got very upset with the Guru on point. He was a court, someone in the court of Jahangir. And so in one of the Sikh texts, Suraj Prakash, a lot of the blame is placed on him for okay. uh, inciting the emperor, you know, pushing the emperor towards this way. So it's kind of interesting because I think in the Sikh texts, there's this attitude, which it does, it is very, you know, I guess it's not very reverent towards the Mughals. Yeah, uh, it, but it's also not. It also acknowledges there's a, there was a mul- multiplicity of factors, and maybe that's because the next guru, Guru Hargobind, who actually started militarizing, he actually had a temporary like alliance with Jahangir at one point, um, political alliance. But they also, you know, got he also got into battles with the Mughal. Sure. So, so uh, yeah. So in this period of time, right? I mean, this is right around the time of the Maratha Empire, also correct. Um, uh, no, the Marathas came about, I think, later. Well, this is probably the early 1600s, right? Yeah. yeah. So the Marathas started, the, their ascendancy started around this time, I thought. Like, uh, is it Shivaji something around uh, 1670 or something like that? Yeah, so, so that was, so Shivaji came on the stage at around a bit before the time of Guru Gobind Singh. Okay. Yeah, so uh, then the, the, maybe the Peshwas were the ones that, at this time that were. Well, I mean, Bajiram was was around at this time. I'm pretty sure, right? Bajiram Bajira came after Shivaji. Okay, see, I'm, I'm my history of medieval India is not very good when it comes to like the Mughal period. I, I get my dates mixed up here, but uh, <laughs> uh, so okay, so we have Jahangir, and then we have um, uh, Gun Arjun's death. Now, as you indicated. The next guru was in the line of, of Arjun, which is uh, Guru um, Hargobind. Hargobind, right? So, at, uh, how old was Hargobind when his father was was uh, killed? So he was, I think, nine, and okay. um, he he also was actually jailed. Um, he, so they put him in in a Gwalior jail. Okay. The emperor for you know insurrection so he so, was jailed at a very young age did he immediately become guru or was there something that took time for him at some point to become guru after so before guru arjun was you know before he went to to, to his execution he was anointed guru hargobind as the next guru okay um and then and so what can you kind of talk about hargobind then and kind of his life and and what his impact was on the tradition yeah, so Guru Hargobind had a very, um, he was sort of, the, he's noted as being sort of the time of the paradigm shift, because up to this point, you know, the Gurus are very, I mean, there's, there's makings of the Malakara and Guru, um, you know, institution building, and, but there's nothing ex- explicitly martial, I guess. 
Guru Hargobind is the warrior guru. So he learns um, Shastravidya, he learns the art of war, um, puts a lot of effort into that. And he, he was known as being a great swordsman. Uh, they said he kept two swords, one of Midi, one of Bidi, Midi being the sort of um, the Amid, real, real, like political power, and Bidi being representative of the sort of, uh, what is it? A spiritual power. Okay. So he builds the Akal Takht, which is the throne of Akal, and he actually built it. So the tradition goes, he built it at, there was a maximum height that anyone could build any throne in, in Mughal India because you couldn't build it above what the Mughals uh, sure. deemed the throne. So he built it above that. And so this is like the eternal throne. Um, and he brings in a political element, a more, I, mean, I guess, more, because there is a political element in Guru Nanak's teachings too, because he does criticize a lot of the, you know, the existing kings and the existing political structure, but he's more active. He's getting Sangat for the first time. You know, he's asking, bring me guns, bring me horses, bring me weapons, start <laughs> army. Battles. He maintains a standing army. He gets in some battles with the Mughals uh, emperor. And yeah, so he, and this is actually something interesting. This is a big paradigm shift for six too. Six were very, um, they were very confused. They were like, you know, the other gurus, they're, they used to sit and just, this one, he goes out hunting. He hangs with, you know, um, he hangs with these people who are, you know, warriors and robbers, sure. robbers and former robbers and all that stuff. And so Bhai Gurdas, who described the Adi Granth, who's a very respected. Who so he's connected to his father, yeah. Yeah. So he writes, you know, um, the rose is covered by thorns. Right? right. He's like, these people have not understood what Guru Hargobind stands for. Um, so, so my question would be, okay, um, Hargobind starts this militaristic move. Now, was it due in part to the way his father was killed? Or was there some sort of issues that the Sikh community was dealing with um, that maybe he, or other reason why he would take up arms? So the, I guess the, so I mean, people view it as a sort of next evolution, but I think that the, the execution of his father was a sort of, you know, a spark moment that kind of, you know, lit sure. the, conscience, the collective conscience. Yeah, there wasn't, there, I mean, that, that's why the major engagements he had was, there was one engagement he had with like Jandu's son, who was like, you know, Jandu's a guy who helped the Mughals execute his father, but yeah, it was in response to that polity. Because so. I mean, it's interesting, because like you indicated, like all the five previous gurus seem to be much more on the mystical uh, and spiritual path of really focusing on like, you know, on the kirtan and, and 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 meditation and all that stuff, and then you have this kind of a shift, at least for Hargobind. Uh, um, so what 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 did he bring outside of the militaristic aspect and and, and kind of the I guess the the warriorness to the community? Was there elements in into the tradition that he brought to? So I mean, those are the those were the elements in the tradition. Okay. Because he didn't, he didn't, he he didn't write compositions that were in the Guru Granth Sahib. He did actually do kirtan, mm -hmm. and he performed it. Um, the tradition says he played instruments, um, and so he was very aware of Gurmat Sangeet. He was very, you know, he did kirtan and all that. But the main element he brought was the element of sort of this martial character and this more this more explicitly political um, institutionalization, which was okay, okay. Prior, you know. And then um, what happened then? So he, he passed on through natural means. Okay. Um, and so the guruship then went to Guru, guru Hararai. 
So mm-hmm. Guru Harai is he 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 maintain he maintained the standing army. He was actually very he's known for being very uh, peaceful. But he, it's kind of interesting because um, he maintained the standing army. He um, maintained the regal dress that Guru Hargobin started, which was he started wearing a plume, uh, which was to signify more explicit that he was a sort of the actual term six used for the guru sometimes is Satche Padshah, which okay. means the true emperor, because Badshah is off the Mughal Badshah, but right. the six, the Satche Padshah is the guru. Um, but so Guru Hararai kept these traditions. He actually opened up a zoo. He opened up a medicine dispensary. He was very, he was known for being very humanitarian. Um, very, he had a the, keen interest in botany. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so that he, so that's what he was, you know, I guess known for. Okay. Um, he was followed by his son, Guru Har Krishan. Um, so Guru Har Krishan was the eighth guru. He is known as a child guru because he was only a child um, when he was anointed, just like Guru Har Gobind was. Sure. Son. He was a bit younger, but he actually, so he his main abode was what is now Bangla Sahib in Delhi. Uh-huh. So um, he's known for, he was doing a lot, you know, he was, there was a smallpox um, play going around at the time and so he you know he was known for doing caretaking uh, around Mangla Sahib and all that he eventually contracted smallpox and he passed away and how old was he when he passed he was eight eight okay so he I mean so this is interesting so at this point you know it's hereditary kind of guruship so the community saw I guess each of these individuals as being gurus into themselves and having that authority even from that young age yeah, yeah, they, they did. Um, okay. Yeah, and it's it, it's so Guru Hare Krishna is known as a child guru. But if you think about it, actually, even Guru Gobind Singh and Guru Hargobin, they were actually child gurus too. It's just they sure. were able to go advance mm-hmm. onto. Um, yeah, and it, there was also a lot of problems because when it was this hereditary system, um, like what happened, you even see this with Guru Hargobin. Somebody try one of his cousins tried assassinating him when he was a baby because, like, there was a lot of different so there was a lot of splits a lot of you know people were upset they didn't get the guru ships they would start their own and they would try you know fighting so there was a lot of within the situation a lot of chaos so the need for a specific you know it was a relative of the guru but it, it was also chosen amongst those okay so so after uh uh, uh Krishna, right yeah good heart Krishna. yeah yeah um who was the one that followed him Guru Tegh Bhadar. So he, Guru Har Krishnan, it's his uncle, who is um, Guru Hargobind's son. So okay. he's, the sixth, he's, he's the ninth guru, but he's the sixth guru's son. Okay. So he, so he is very interesting because Guru Tegh Bhadar was, he, um, he was a great warrior in his youth, but he had kind of, you know, and he continued to be a great warrior, but he was very much interested in more the Kirtan and that mystic tradition. And so his, he is the last gurus whose writings are featured in the Guru Granth Sahib. Okay. And so he was also, and his was also a watershed moment. He's also well known because under him, the saga of the Kashmiri Pandits coming, and you know, this is when Aurangzeb was on the scene. Right. So he's the governor of, of Kashmir at the time, implementing Aurangzeb sort of like convert everyone to Islam uh, policy he basically put that on the Kashmiri Pandits. So a congregation of them visited the ninth guru 
And the ninth guru said, okay, you know what, I will go as designated as representative. If, and he said, you know, he told them, he said, if you can kill me, uh, you know, if you can convert me to Islam, then these followers of, you know, mine, these Kashmiri Pandas, they will also convert. And the guru was, his, he came with four companions. They were tortured really uh, badly. So one was like sawed in half from the face, um, from like the middle of the face. One was boiled in hot water. One was put in cotton and that was set on fire. And the guru himself was uh, beheaded. So under Aurangzeb's orders, right? Under Aurangzeb's orders. It was in uh, Lahore. So there's a Gurdwara. Or no, sorry. It was in Delhi. It was in Delhi. So there's a Gurdwara in the fifth guru was executed in Lahore. So there's a Gurdwara there. He was executed in a Gurdwara, which is now in Chandani Chok, called Siskanj, which okay. means where the guru gave his cease, his head. Um, yeah. Um, so do we, I mean, obviously the, the, was Aurangazeb present for that or was it done outside of his, uh, his purview in the sense of like his, do you not watch it? According to Sikh tradition, he was present. Um, Sikh tradition here is very, very explicitly uh, against Aurangzeb on this point. It's uh, unless, unlike where Jahangir, where there's sort of this, there's like this multiplicity factors here. It's pretty much, you know, explicitly stated that it was Aurangzeb directly ordering. And there's also like some tales of like Aurangzeb being the one who's saying you must convert to Islam and doing this and all that. So, so why would there be that uh, difference, right? Because Jahangir did the same thing to, to Arjun, yeah. right? So, uh, Guru Arjun. So why would there be that difference with uh, Guru Tegh Bahadur's way he was killed versus Arjun's? Was it the brutality of it? Or was it, um, what, what, why is there more anger towards Aurangzeb versus Jahangir? So I think with Jahangir, I mean, Jahangir himself was kind of like, he was kind of like, he, he was an alcoholic, you know, he wasn't like really, so even the historians note that like the, he was at one point, he was very riled up by the Naqshbandis and the next he, he even imprisoned those Naqshbandis. So mm-hmm. his own life wasn't really marked by this. It, it wasn't a constant. Whereas with Aurangzeb, it's, he was, his whole motto was, you know, we must preserve the, sanctity of orthodox islam we must bring it back um you know and there there was and there was a, there were explicit you know i guess with jahangir there's the idea that okay you know he was incited by this guy and there was also this political element that pushed and there's also his insider chandu with Aurangzeb, it's you know he, he was very clearly some guy somebody who had th- these policies widespread um explicitly for the purpose of enacting these sort of yeah so i, I mean uh, on a related note, I mean, we're having nowadays, uh, especially recently, um, like someone like Audrey Trusky wrote oh, yeah. about Aurangzeb and how he wasn't as as fanatical that the, as the Sikhs made out, and maybe it wasn't even him that ordered that, and so on and so forth. What what has been the response within the Sikhi scholars, uh, if you know, or the, or the community in response to this? Um, that's actually good that you mentioned because I actually gave a very, very detailed response to Audrey um, about this on Twitter, uh, which she responded to. Um, but I, I, I debated her for this some time on this because um, I've pointed out that her treatment of Aurangzeb is is just shock, astonishingly yeah. bad. Um, it's 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 so bad, and it, like this question of okay, how do you tie in this ninth guru's um, martyrdom? Her response was basically that, well, this is a religious event. There's no contemporary sources. There, 
Um, he and Aurangzeb, like her own projection, Aurangzeb was a political guy, not a religious guy, so he wouldn't even have offered the thing of converting to Islam. Um, and like six, there's one Sikh scholar, um, Amandit Madara, who has responded. He said, you know, I read Audrey's book and I was very surprised that she said there's no contemporary sources when the 10th Guru himself writes that his father was killed for this reason. And right, and why would he make and, it up? And her, and her response to that was, well, it was written 20, it was written because, I mean, he was a child at the time. So her response was, well, it was written maybe 15, 20 years after the fact. And and I pointed this out, I was like, it was his father, right? That's a right. resource. Um, and she gave no response to that. And she was, she basically tried to, she tried to say, she tried mentioning, I mean, I, maybe, I think I have the, tri- the thread in a moment. I'll probably send it to you. Sure, yeah. Yeah, because I, I gave a very detailed response. I actually said I was going to write, I started writing in a full-blown art, article on Brown Pundits for it, but I wanted to make it very dense, so I just got, you know. Sure. But yeah, so um, her response was basically that, oh, you know, a community, you know, a community can have its memory whatever the way you want, but what the hist- hist- historical facts are says nothing. I'm like, no, no, look, we don't even, like, this isn't a thing about my belief as a Sikh. Like, no. what you're saying is grievously offensive to that belief, but let's put that aside it's the fact that you are only looking at the Mughal source, like, and the one Mughal source that, because there's one Mughal source that says the Teg Bahadur was, you know, he was killed for inciting rebellion across Punjab and this, that. But that Mughal source is written 200 years after. Anyway. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So, so how does the contemporary issue then uh, pop up? So, uh, so that's, so that's what even um, Madra pointed out. He said, this isn't just, you know, ideological clash. It's just bad historiography because you're literally ignoring, you're, you're thinking, okay, the only sick reference to this event is it's only a sick reference and it's only, because there's no contemporary Mughal. Her argument was that, oh, well, if this was a big event, then the Mughal's chroniclers at the time would have wrote, written about it in that sense. And, and it's just a very, like, there's so many events in Sikh history that aren't explicitly written like that. Or just, like, there's obviously two sides to a very contentious issue. Well, I mean, could the issue have been, I mean, uh, and with all due respect, could the issue have been like, Aurangzeb didn't see this even as being worthy of being read, uh, mentioned in his like biography because it was something he did on a regular basis. And who are, who are these Sikhis, right? Why do I care about even putting them in? They're not like some big person in, in, in that I've killed otherwise, right? I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean no, exactly. Like, I, I mean, I, I think that's totally like, for him, it was just, oh, this saint, he's, he's coming in the way of this, this expansionist project, just let's, you know, be done with it. So, right. for, so it's, it's, and it's, I think it's just her, his history, history got her historical analysis, I think is faulty on a lot of issues on this one. I think it breaks down in particular because I mean, a lot of her views is that when, when someone responds to her history, even like a very civilized way, she's like, Oh, this is because of the right rise of the Hindu right wing. Sure. Uh, this is not, you know, I'm, I'm just being targeted because of my activism and with six, it's like, okay, you can't say that, right? So she's, she's put in this interesting spot. And the way she's responded is still somehow maintaining that facade of, you know, being a scholar while not really saying stuff that would hold up in any scholarly sense. Sure. I mean, which is, I mean, this is, uh, the only reason I think it's, I mean, there's multiple reasons I think it's interesting, but for the purpose of this conversation, it's really interesting because this is like a, a central, I mean, this was one of the last gurus of, of the, the Sikhi community and the there's a memory that I mean and it's in, in in relative history it's pretty recent right so like the point you made is 
uh, Gobind Singh, you know, uh, Thakwar with their son, I mean, he would know how his father died, right? Unless yeah. everyone in the community is lying to him and, tell, and, and saying this is how he died, but he didn't die that way, which is even more flabbergasting. Um, but the interesting part to me is this is the, uh, the first situation or first time I have read of any scholar in, in the Indian context writing about how Aurangazeb wasn't as fanatical and didn't kill Beg Bahadur, right? This is, it's, it's, a, it's a very opportune period of time in history that someone is writing that, where every single, uh, from, from my understanding, every single, even native historian, and even people like uh, A.L. Basham or, uh, you know, uh, Stanley Wolpert, all these guys will agree that this happened, but suddenly Audrey Chesky is saying it's not. Yeah, and I, I, th I definitely think it's, the way it's because, I mean, she, again, my opinion is that she's interested in the narrative of, you know, redeeming this one guy who's a very clear thorn to her view that, you know, oh, this, this history of persecution, just a modern made up history. Right. And this one incident, which is so blaringly, you know, blatantly um, a blight on her narrative, she just kind of uh, hand waves it away. And she hasn't responded to my queries uh, either, which is something I, well, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to write the article in a more formulated sense. Sure. Um, but yeah, that's, I'll definitely link you that. that thread. Yeah, I, I would love to, I would love to read that article. Yeah. Um, so, so continuing with this. So after Thay uh, Bahadur was killed by Ariza, um, and then at this point, I, I, I think uh, Gobind, like you indicated, was a good Gobind was pretty young, right? He yeah, was, he was, sorry. Yeah, he was pretty young, yeah. Yeah. So, what happened from here? Because this one, this must have been a monumental moment also in the history of, of the, the Sikhi people even at that time. Yeah, so it was indeed a monumental uh, moment. So he, you know, he witnessed, um, he witnessed the sort of, uh, so it was because when, when, he, when the Guru was killed, um, the tradition says that his head was just, you know, left out there. Right. And we're like, nobody was everyone was afraid to go and grab the head and body in daylight so like some one sick by jitta quickly in the middle of the night you know he went and grabbed it uh he did a proper cremation to it then another sick was able to do cremation to the body and um well before so by jitta he brought the head of guru Teg Bahadur to guru gobind singh so there's you know a lot of paintings describing that that scene and, and then he cremated um the head and then someone else cremated the body and this, this did have, I think, a very found fundamental, um, I guess, impact on Guru Gobind Singh because he more rigorously, I mean, Guru Hargobind started the military tradition and, and that was sort of present among just all the Gurus. Guru Gobind Singh really elevated it to the next step. Okay. And so, um, he, so he wrote a lot of poetry, which is not in the Guru Granth Sahib, it's in a separate text called the Dasam Granth. Uh, it's with that's what it's structured a bit differently. Okay. Uh, it's it's but he also created as what many of us know the Khalsa, which was this was more you know this was disbanding the Mundi system before the decentralized system. It said mm -hmm. from now on, the entire body of six collectively is the Khalsa. It created it more formally gave a religious identity. It gave a more you know institutional approach and uh, there's a, a more formal initiation through Khande Di Pohol which is the 
sugar water stirred by the sword. Um, this is where the five keys come in, the physical symbols uh, for all six, the surname Singh and God for initiated sick men and women, and um, also the injunction that all Khalsa now, it's not just, you know, a standing army of, like, all you all have a responsibility, not just to be spiritual, not just to, but to live the, the sort of have that dualistic approach that the six would have had, which was be spiritual, but also be armed and be prepared for war. So, um, so let's talk about, uh, well, let's go through his story and then we'll talk about the Khalsa itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, so he creates the Khalsa in response to what at that time and why did it happen? What was so, it mean? So, one thing is I personally believe that the Khalsa was not created as a response mm-hmm. to Guru Tegh Bahadur specifically. Okay. Um, I think it was a culmination of sort of all of the institutional building, all of the resources that had gone into, you know, that, that the previous gurus had established. It was a more concrete way of affirming this, this community's identity in a more permanent fashion. Um, so... The martial, the, the heavily martial aspect, I think that was definitely, um, it was inspired by the sixth group. I think the, you know, the martyrdom of the ninth group definitely it elevated him to bring it to the next level. Mm-hmm. So like amongst his composition, he has the which is which is literally like a litany of just, it describes like praising various weapons. Right. Uh, a lot of his poetry is, is about, you know, Chand, Chandi, the warrior goddess, and, you know, describing her exploits on the battlefield. Um, he writes about this imagined warrior. He has his own writing. And this is all Gobind, right? Gobind, yeah. yeah. He has this imagined writing about Kardag Singh, who's a, um, he, he fights in like what is, what would be ancient Vedic or Puranic times, mm-hmm. which is this warrior, and he just describes his exploits in the battlefield. Um, he trained, he was very skilled in bow and arrow, so Guru Hargobind was very good with the sword. Even Guru Tegh Bahadur is good with the sword. Guru Gobind Singh is good with sword, but his specialty is bow and arrow. Okay. Um, he also, you know, continues the tradition of arm yourselves. Now it's not just contribute to the standing army. You are the standing army, sort of. Right. Um, so, yeah, um, I would say, yeah. And then okay. also he, just, he, he dismantled that decentralized approach because he said, you know, because in that approach, you have a Masand who's local caretaker of all the local Sikh population. That approach is now gone. Everyone comes directly under the Guru. Everyone is a Khalsa Sikh. Oh, interesting. So, so when, when this happened, the old system, kind of the Manji system we talked about, kind of disappeared and then the Khalsa system took over at that point, right? It was right. dismantled, yeah. It was right. t- entirely dismantled, yeah. Now, now, the original Khalsa was uh, how many people, like, because he, there's a story around it, right, where he had uh people like was it 10 people or five people so, so the story yeah so it happened on Visaki, which was a day or two days ago yeah that's right yeah so he brought a congregation of all the six which they would always congregate on Visaki, all the six in, right you know. and so he basically pulled out his sword and said okay who is ready to give their head um and so you know nobody nobody said anything he said i need a head and so eventually one volunteer came another volunteer came and so the tradition is, um, interestingly, that it says he took them behind this big tent he had, and he, like, chopped off a goat's head, and blood rushed out to, like, yeah. the sort of drama that the, that person had died. 
Um, and then after that, after the five were done, um, he declared, this is what, you know, we demand, uh, I demand of my sick. You need to be prepared to give your head. Um, and now he wanted to, like, he, he gave them the first uh, Amrit Sanjar, which is basically the first uh, initiation as Khalsa Sikh. So they all um, partook in that sugar water stirred with the double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. And they actually initiated the guru himself into the Khalsa. So those five, and that's how the tradition is. Um, five baptized six or initiated six uh, initiate you into the Khalsa. Okay. And so, yeah. And from that point onward, you maintain that sort of the symbols of faith, the Khalsa identity, um, and so on. So, I, I mean, the thing I think a lot of people don't know is the five are from actually from all over India. Right? There yeah. Wasn't, yeah, wasn't yeah, just yeah. yeah. They were from different castes and they were from. One was from Odisha, one was, one was from Punjab, one was from um, yeah, Karnataka, Gujarat, um, Odisha, Punjab, and then I'm forgetting where the fifth was from. But yeah, they're all from all over India. Um, that shows sort of how the Sikh, the Sikh Sanghas at the time were less concentrated in Punjab. Right. Now. Right. And so after, after their creation of the Khalsa, what, what, what happened with Gobind and kind of what was his life like? I mean, what was... The purpose outside of the Khalsa, kind of for his mil- he was a military guy. What was his kind of uh, goal? Well, his military. I mean, he didn't he didn't launch offensive battles. Mm-hmm. So he was his goal was then just you know spreading the Khalsa. He had a, a fort in an unfort in a small residential area, kind of like Kartarpur, but just at a larger scale now because you have a political body, you have more sure. solid institutions, and that caught the ire of some of the local. Um, Bahari Rajas, who then they launched an offensive on him with the help of Aurangzeb in his army. And so there was, there were some battles fought. And after that, the Guru, he basically had to, he managed to escape from that battle to Punjab. And that in Punjab, um, the, the, there were a lot of Mughal principalities in Eastern Punjab. So they launched an offensive on the Guru from there. And so two of his, Two of his oldest sons, uh, aged 15 to 17, they actually asked for his permission to go out and fight in this battle, which was literally, there were like 40 of them in this small Havili surrounded by like a force of around um, a thousand or so, um, probably like 2,000. Um, and so they went out and they, what he would do is five, six would go out of time. They would you know, fight to the death. Another five would go out. And the two, his two sons, eldest sons who were with him, they asked to go out and fight and they died as well. And at that point, the Guru's family was separated. So his two youngest sons, aged seven to nine, they were with the Guru's mother, yeah. uh, wife of Guru Tegh Bahadur. So they managed to reach one of those Mughal principalities in Sarhan, which is the easternmost of Punjab. And so he was very delighted to basically have them in his presence. And he was like, you know what? You guys should convert to Islam. This is going to be a big bruise to the ego of Guru Gobind Singh. Um, and they refused to. And so for this, they were bricked alive and um, their throats were slit and at the age of seven or nine. Because, and after this, uh, their grandmother, Mata Gudri, she died of shock. Um, so basically, after all this is done, um, this came as a huge shock to the community. Sure. Uh, after all this is done, you have Guru Gobind Singh at the age of you know, 35, he's lost his father as a child. He's lost his four sons. Two of them just 
battle for his eyes. His children, his like little kids, they're also gone. And um, he's lost you know, his mother. Right. So he, he spends his time writing poetry of various uh, persuasions. He writes a letter to the emperor called the Zafarnama, which is the letter of victory. And it's written in Farsi and it incorporates a lot of the, these themes from Persian literature to basically write this, you know, scathing remark on the emperor saying, you know, you think you're such a great Muslim, you, you do all this, you say all this great stuff, but you even failed to even, the one thing you, you thought you did was, oh, I'm such a great Muslim. But when you said, because at one point in the fort, when he was holed up in the fort, the Aurangzeb, his commander swore on the Quran that they would let the Guru go free mm-hmm. and they didn't. So he said, you even broke that faith. It's like, what is there to expect from someone like you? Um, and so very emotionally charged. And in the last years of his life, the guru went to down south to Nandir, which is in Maharashtra. Mm-hmm. Uh, he started a Sangat there. And he managed to find a, an individual named Madhodas who became a Sikh, Banda Bahadur. And Banda Bahadur led the Khalsa army back up north into Punjab to basically take... Um, to take avenge those, the sides of these, the smallest children, and to basically, um, you know, establish some sort of sick polity within those, um, within those areas. Okay, okay. And then, um, and Gobind at this, at this period, he, he died in his 50s, right? Or Yeah, he died, he did, so he, he was, um, so his story is that he, he's around, yeah, he's 50, I think 50, or maybe late 40s, because, so that Vizier Khan, the guy who killed his um, two, two youngest sons, he actually sent two assassins to go and they, they acted as his bodyguards. Yeah. Um, but then they basically like once in the, in the camp, they like quickly stabbed him. And the guru then he managed to like kill both of them, but he was wounded. Um, there was a doctor sent patched up to like, he patched up his wounds a bit. Um, but the story goes is that eventually he succumbed to those wounds and, and so he passed away. Right. Uh, and, and if not before giving the guru, guru, so he gave the eternal status of the 11th guru to the Khalsa Panth. He said, you are the like physical manifestation of it. And the Guru Granth said, so Guru Granth and Guru Panth, sometimes people say, so. Okay. So now, I mean, we spent a lot of time with just the history. Now let's talk a little bit about the, the philosophy and, and kind of like the ideas behind Sikhism, because I, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me is, I, what, which I don't know about, is, for example, um, like you indicated, uh, Guru Gobind would write about Chandi and, and fighting in these battles. What was the, the Gurus or the, the, the this, I guess now the, the modern Sikhs view on like Puranic history or these battles between, you know, like these stories like Mahabharata, Ramayana, what was their understanding of it? Because was was it that they believed that these things were part of their story or they're metaphorical? How did they how did they view it? Um, that's a good question. So I think at the time, um, the guru writes he he cites a lot. For like so, when talking about his own battles, he says like one warrior he fought with the ferocity of Dronacharya. Yeah. He even says like um, I think there's a lot of references in so amongst so he kept a kavidarbar of 52 poets and they you know they translate a lot of sanskrit literature into braj mm-hmm. they um they minted sort of this this new so the, the khalsa was very much founded with the belief that it was manifesting in this new age of tarim this new age the khalsa very much at that time 
believed that it was the sort of living legacy, the sort of manifestation of that power of Chandi, of that power of these, you know, um, these, uh, what is it? These ancient warriors mm -hmm. uh, and, and all that. So I definitely think that was a key aspect of how the Khalsa envisioned themselves in terms of metaphorically, in terms of the battle they were waging. Um, in terms of what Sikhs literally believed about it, I mean, I, I guess Sikhs do generally accept the Jug system. So like Sikhs believe that we're in Kal Jug currently. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I guess for Sikhs, Kal Jug is the greatest Jug because it produced the Sikh Gurus. Um, and you know, so Sikhs are the Kal Jug and Sikh is the Sikh. Six are the manifest. This is the traditional view, viewpoint, anyways. Um, obviously, some people will differ, but six are view themselves as the sort of harbingers of justice in Kaljog, the Khalsa. Okay, so but I mean, how how do they view like the, the traditional devatas and uh, and things of that nature in their system, right? Because you do have references to like Rama, Shiva. Krishna, Govind, uh, Chandi, and you know you have these these deities, um, you know, in, in with uh, their names brought up, and and even when you're talking poetry, they're obviously describing how they're fighting, or because uh, I know some some Sikhis that also worship Chandi, right? So how do how, how do these quote unquote traditional Hindu deities play into the the the, the Sikhi religion? So the the Devte, so the worship is always conferred to the Nirgun, the, the formless, Akal mm -hmm. or you know even even Hari, which is a name used for Christian Christian. Yeah. Uh, it usually in the Guru Granth when it's referring to Hari, it's referring to the formless vision. Sure. Uh, of that, but these Devte definitely play a role in the sense that um, they're not worshipped per se, but they are respected in traditional Sikh tradition. Um, so sometimes they're, they're, the the position it's it kind of varies, but the gurus will you know there's he there's um, they will write about the stories of the devta. There's even a poet of the guru who says the Khalsa Pant is like it's Hanuman like it is powerful it is you know imbued with strength, um, and these especially in the Sikh literary tradition these. Um, these they, they were especially revered because they're they're made a, they're referenced and there's so many analogs of of them and they're respected uh, very very much so um, so yeah but they're not I guess worshipped in the sense that we don't like murtis of the dev they're not are not like worshipped or any of that's in that sense sure. uh, but jandi is especially interesting because jandi. So the way six revere the spirit of Jandi is through the spirit of the sword. Yeah. Know? And so um, the view is that, you know, that this is how Jandi is manifested to the Khalsa. The Khalsa is infused with the warrior spirit of, of the goddess. And so um, she's a very respected figure in the traditional Sikh um, ethos. Mm -hmm. and, and this is why if you go to Gurdwara, um, it's surrounded by weapons. Six, you know, they did worship weapons in a sense, because it was considered, you know, a sacred thing that the that Jandi came in the form of the sword. Sure. Um, that, that is the form that the six, the Khalsa recognizes as, um, yeah. So now, I mean, a lot of people do say that um, Sikhism takes some elements from Islam and some from Hinduism. What do you think are the elements it takes from Islam? 
So I think the element, one element it does take from Islam is the idea of religious identity in the sense that the Khalsa, it's posited specifically as a Tisrapant, which means the Guru says, you know, the, it is different from the Hindu Panth, it is separate from the Islamic Panth, it is a third religious path. So we were, I guess we were talking earlier about how Dharmic religions, there's a lot of blurred lines, and that's especially true with the first nine Gurus. But with the 10th Guru, it is kind of taking this worldview that is you know, different. It is, sure. it, there, is, there is a sense of difference, not in the Abraham, total Abrahamic sense of, you know, the difference is, the difference I think is that for six, this difference is just a difference in, let's say, your life rituals. And, and how, it doesn't mean like once you, if you become a Khalsasik, that is the only, right? Because there's still non-Khalsasiks, non-Ikpanthis who participate in the Gurdwara who, who would have dialogue with six. But I think the idea of having an exclusive religious identity, that is something, I guess, that is similar, um, analogous, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, although that religious identity, one has to notice, is also separate from the two bonds, which includes Hinduism and Islam. Sure. And uh, the other aspect, I would say, is some of the literature, I mean, there's a lot of Islamic hate. I, I would use that term, which refers to the cultural aspects. So like... Um, Nihang. Nihang is a, is a Persian, is a Farsi word. Sure. Um, there's Bungas. Bungas is a Farsi word. Yeah, these are words, but what concepts or ideas does it take into? Yeah, so, so these ideas are, so these are like, that's why it's more Islamicate, because Islamicate is more just like the cultural um, sure. trappings. So there's not like a, there's not like a, like there's not a problem with like, let's say Farsi, like one of the Guru's poets wrote in Farsi. Sure. Um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's, I mean, I think one thing's like there's, some who say Sikhi is an Indo-Abrahamic religion, and I, I just don't understand that because um, I think there are some similarities seemingly in the sense that, okay, Sikhs don't, you know, worship idols. And even the Guru, he mentioned this, you know, Sikhs, the 10th Guru mentioned this, in his, that, that Sikhs don't, they don't worship idols. And Sikhs, that's, that's a very strong portion, part of Sikh belief that is similar to Islam, but if you dig down, the reason is, is, is very different. Like the reasoning for not worshiping idols in Islam is shirk. Yeah. It's, sort of, it's um, insulting to Allah. If you, if you worship, for six, it's not insulting. It's just, it's like, the, it's more of like, okay, what is the purpose of this? And yeah. So the, the idea of one almighty, it's, it's similar, it seems similar. And I guess the, when six were engaging in talks with Muslims, they would often, even historically, they would make, reference to how these are similar concepts, but it's not quite the same because the uh, manifest, how is Allah is in Islam is very different than how it is in, in the Sikh context. And, and one thing I would point out is that I think there were at that time specifically and later in history, there were some Muslims who shared a similar vision of, of how the divine. So Mian Mir was one of the close affiliates of the fifth guru. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, he actually gave his sons to fight for the ninth, for the 10th Guru. So there were definitely those who had a similar syncretic um, vision of the faith, but it's not in the sense, I, I think the problem is that when people think of mainstream, what's mainstream Islam today, let's say Pakistan. Um, sure. The differences are, the similarities are, I mean, they're very, they're not as, um, you know, they're, they're superficial. Yeah, one God, no idols, okay, cool, but there's not like a strong, there's a lot of, there's a conflation of Islamic hate with Islamic. 
Yeah, I mean, but and that's the thing. It's 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 funny to me because, like, with, it's for me, I don't see really outside of like terms like you indicated. I don't see anything particularly. Actually, nothing is on it about about Sikhism in in that sense. It, it's very dharmic. It just it just it is it, taken a very. Look, I mean, there are trends within various dharmic faiths that be they don't actually have murtis, right? Like even the concept of murti worship is relatively came in the middle of of probably the the the, the tradition within India, right? Like murtis yeah. come about to like second or third century BC. Yeah, yeah. Well before that, they didn't have murtis. It was yajna ovens. Um, yeah. And then and a, a lot of people, you know, a lot of traditions, like for example, I think like the not the not sex. Some of them don't even do any uh, murti worship. They they only do they focus on Nirguna Brahman. And you have, you know, even I think like even the Lingayats really don't have like temples that way. Um, and it, it, there's various traditions that were well before Islam and that still maintain, you know, no no murti, no you know focusing on like Nirguna. And, uh, it, 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 to me, like just the way the Sikh, the Sikhi practices, from what I can tell, is very dynamic. It's just that they, they just take in the concepts that they thought are more important. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, there's one other thing you could say. It has a similarity, but it's like the initiation ceremony. So I, I think that's something that's, you know, in the idea of Christianity or even Islam where you convert. Because well, I mean, is there, a, I mean, like for any, if you enter any sampradaya, with even within the Hindu tradition, there's an initiation ceremony. It usually involves water. Um, it, it might involve some sort of uh, getting a mantra, like for example, like when you become within a certain community to be, I mean, within every tradition actually, to be initiated into a mantra, you have to have certain um, ritual done, like uh, water, uh, eat uh, something particular, passed down from, from guru to the shishya. It, it, I mean, there are initiation ceremonies across every culture, I think. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's what, like, there, even, so even prior to the Khalsa, there was an initiation, initiation ceremony of Jarampaho. Yeah. But I think the Khalsa, what, I guess what one analog is that once someone becomes a Khalsa Sikh, they sort of, they become part of that third month. So they forego the, so remember we were talking about, I guess, the duality that was present sure. before. Um, so like, once someone becomes a Khalsa Sikh, and so Sikhs today, who are like, you know, identify Sikhs, they're basically the descendant of the Khalsa Sikhs. So you can, con so people, it's really weird when people say you convert to Sikhi because like, how do you convert to Sikhi, right? Like, because yeah. a Hindu could just, they could just read the Guru Granth Sahib and they could just be, continue to be a Hindu. Yeah. But when people usually say convert to Sikhi, that means taking the initiation and becoming a Khalsa Sikh. Because once you become a Khalsa Sikh, you are then, you know, there, it is its own society onto itself. Um, there's the saying that, you know, the Khalsa blends the forecast into one. It mm -hmm. is its own social envision. Um, it is a thesis of Bant. And so, um, that's a concept that I think is it's analogous structurally to Islam, but I wouldn't say it's Islamic, if that makes well, sense. It, what it seems to be similar to me is the concept of much of the ascetic traditions that within the, the, the Indian sampradayas have, I mean, the, the, the Dharmic sampradayas, right? To become a certain ascetic, you have to wear certain clothes, you have to do certain things with your hair, you have to uh, do initiation, but but those are aesthetic traditions, right? Like if you were to enter like a um, Advaita Ashrama or Ramaja yeah. Ashrama, whatever it is, you become the particular community, you follow certain, you get initiation into it, and then you're separated from the rest of the 
of the uh, of the community around you in some sense. But I feel like in the Sikhi tradition, it's still their householder tradition, right? Like you, you know, like with Nanak, right? Which is ultimately mm -hmm. his perspective, um, which is interesting because it's do you have a, a tradition within Sikhism that is ascetic at all? Uh, yeah, so the Udasis um, were ascetic, and um, I guess they're also there's a Nirmala tradition. So they're they're not like explicitly ascetic, but they were the ones who would they would do a lot of the exegeses of Sikh texts. So they were very learned in Sanskrit. Sure, uh, they were Benares, and they would learn Sanskrit and all these. They would learn Vedanta, and they would interpret Sikh texts through the lens of Vedanta. And some were actually initiated in the Khalsa, some were not. There's a spectrum on that too. Right. Uh, but so I guess you can also refer to them as ascetic in a sense, but um, the, the Khalsa is taken to be a, like, that is also one, it's a family, it's a family, I guess, life in, in reading. Sure. Now, we briefly talked uh, touched on this, but um, can you be Sikhi without being Khalsa? Yeah, yeah. So you can be, yeah. So you can be a Sikh uh, without being Khalsa. The term for that traditionally was Sahaj Thadi. Okay. Um, which meant like, it means um, either slow, sahaj means slow or wise. Thadi uh -huh. means like, like, so the term thadi means someone who adorns something. So uh, the word for Khalsa Sikhs is usually Amritari. Yeah. Uh, the word for Sikhs today who like keep, like I'm not Amritari, but I keep my kisses, kisses, thadi. Um, but so traditionally sahaj thadi Sikhs. So they were the ones who followed Sikhi. Yeah. Uh, but they didn't follow the Khalsa religious um, uh, sort of, what is it, Dom, uh, dominatory worldview. And this included a, a lot of Hindus in Punjab, a lot of Khatris especially. Yeah. Um, so there's one, and they, they actually, a lot of them were able to help the Khalsa when they were sort of in conflict with the Mughals because they were able, they, so they shaved, they ate halal, uh, they smoked, these are things that are like forbidden for the Khalsa Sikhs. Yeah. But they were able to, you know, get in the Mughal administrations and they were able to sort of act as a midway person. They were very pro-Sikh, pro-Khalsa. Yeah. Um, they would have a lot of respect to the, towards the Khalsa, um, but they were not Khalsa themselves. And they, would so, keep, they, they wouldn't take the name Singh, so like Koramal. And then the yeah. other tradition, so the other main, um, I guess, Sajdar tradition is the Rababis. So these are guys, they would do Kirtan. So they're the descendants of Mardana, the first Sikh ever. So they're kind of Muslim, but they're also Sikh because okay. they, they identify as Muslim, but they actually know the Kirtan, they perform the Kirtan, they have a lot of Sikh practices. Um, so they're, I guess, part of that syncretic tradition. Do they, do, do they worship in Gurdwara too? Or, yeah. do, they, or yeah. do they go they, to uh, Masjid? So they, they worship in Gurdwara too. Okay. Um, so they, that, that tradition is kind of, with the partition, that tradition kind of has gone um, because they were, they, were, they were kind of stuck there. So they're, they're, right. they all stayed in Lahore. So actually, I, I managed to meet one when I went to Lahore. Mm -hmm. uh, the of, he was just in the Gurdwar. He was chilling. Um, he was very like, happy to meet you know, a fellow Sikh. Uh, a Sikh and, mm -hmm. um, but there, there's a lot of you know, research going on too about how their tradition is changing because now the dominant, more orthodox Islam is taking over. These trad Sikh traditions are sort of being lost. Um, and there's some researchers who are trying to, you know, bring their ababis back, right. bring some of their um, traditions back into it. So uh, here's the question. I mean, how does it work in, in the, the Gurdwara? Sorry. It, it, I mean, uh, is there like a priestly group or like a group? I mean, I, I mean that in a, 
very loose sense, right? The, the person that leads the kirtans, that does the rituals. What is that breakdown within Gurdwara? So the Gurdwara is, um, the Granthi is the like caretaker. Uh-huh. Uh, so he takes care of the Gurdwara, takes care of the Gurgan side. Uh, also the Gyanni is like the, the wise man who, you know. Um, so these are like, these aren't, I guess they're like a priestly class. Sure. Um, but they're not like specifically like they're, these are people who, I mean, they have normal jobs and all. I mean, they have normal, like, I guess they're married and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but, but how are they chosen? How do they get there? Is it just like... So there's no, there's no, like, there's no official training. So it's just like, historically, it was just revered saints and all who would just okay. take over. Um, so technically, any Khalsa can, can be this, you know, take this path. And, and in the colonial area, what, what happened is there were a lot of, mis- uh, like, call it sick missionary colleges. Missionary doesn't mean, like, Christian, like, sure. Sikh colleges that would like educate Sikhs in this, in like Sikhi and all that, and they would become like a Paisab or Granthi or Gyanni, and they would right. you know, caretake a Gurdwara and all that. But within like even the Golden Temple, right, is is that hereditary? The, the, the people that take care of the Guru Granth Sahib the, actually there and manage that, or is that so, again? So in the the way the, the Golden Temple, so there are, each of the, there's five takts, which are like five centers. Mm-hmm. Um, the Kal takt, uh, Keshkar Sahib, Hazur Sahib, Patna Sahib, and um, Dumdum Sahib. Mm-hmm. So all of these have Jathedars who are appointed. Um, so it's like, a, I guess it's a meritocracy in a sense. Okay. Um, it's always been that way. And the, the caretakers are basically, you know, I think they're employees of the, the what is now the, um, overseeing body the sgpc um so they're they're like employees i guess okay and they're not they're not like a, a special i mean there's not like special deference of offer to them they're just you know people there to care to, to caretaking and all now is there any particular rituals that are followed by the community um by the community oh yeah, yeah. in, in gurdwara there's like a lot followed by the community so like um there's offering a prasad and there's arda so the, after kirtan uh, there's usually the uh, there's a reading of the Guru Granth Sahib, which is the Hukam Nama, so it's randomly turned to a page. Someone reads it, uh, sometimes a Granth or someone from the congregation. I've done it. Um, there's also the offering of the Prashad, the Kara Prashad, uh, amongst the congregation. There's the Ardas, which is read, which recounts the history uh, of this, the Sikh um, tradition and, and praise um, for the contemporary, you know, good well well-being of the contemporary uh, Sikh Pant. And um, there's the Lunger. So, and all of these have, they have associated, like, like there's associated rituals in the sense that, like, um, when, you know, you, like, when the Guru Granth Sahib is taken out, we, 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 we fan the Guru Granth Sahib with a shawl as a sense of respect, and when it's taken out, we, we bow down to it um, out of reverence, and so, yeah, so there are these, small, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, that's similar to what happens with Murthy's too, right? Um, in, in the Hindu tradition, they're fan. And then when they go for what's known as uh, utsava, which is like kind of like going out into the community um, or taken out of their resting place, they're treated in a, in a similar differential manner, right? I mean, again, like the term idol itself is very, to me, doesn't make sense because we're not actually, even for the Hindus, right? We don't think of it as the thing in itself is inherently uh, divine. It's the, the divinity is summoned into it. Now we have some some variability here. Certain certain like 
certain um, uh, murtis aren't considered inherently divine, which would be like your what's known in, especially in, 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 the, in, in the Hindu communities as swayambu or whatever, which is self-manifesting. Um, but yeah, it'd be similar to what, what, we, what would happen to the, the Buddha Gram. Now, what is the role of women in the rituals and the practice in, in, in Sikhi? Uh, there's no specific role, but there's, I mean, there's no, they, they have the same access as men. Like, could, could they do the reading of the, uh, uh, the kirtan? Can they, yep. can, can they do everything that the males can do within, like, like Vita Gnani there, or yep. the, oh, okay. They can, yeah. I mean, there's, there's some people who, like, to say, like, oh, you know, uh, there's, I guess there's some voices um, who's, who are, like, against it but the the overwhelming consensus and the historical consensus is that women have the equal access so one of the greatest um sick warriors of all time he was actually found by a, just to sing a luali he was actually found by a khalsa army contingent because him and his mom used to just sing it and uh, and do it across you know punjab at the time no but women can't become part of the khalsa can they yeah they can how, how they, would they do that uh, so they just take they take amrit and they become so they, they don't become sings they become gors gors okay and Gors. but uh, do they still have to carry around uh, like the 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 kirpan and this yep and they do so the only the only difference is that um, women for women so, so a lot of sick women especially now are starting to wear the turban mm -hmm. uh, for women for men the turban is like it's it's pretty much you have to wear the turban for women traditionally they would either wear a turban or they would cover their hair with jami so um, but for it, men, it, it, you have to wear a turban or is it just covering your head? Like just keep it covered constantly? So this is, yeah, so this is something that's like debated. So you're, you're technically just supposed to cover your head. Uh -huh. um, but like, yeah, you're supposed to technically cover your head. So th that's so the basic requirement is supposed to cover your head for men and women. But most men will like wear a turban. I mean, you'll see some of these kids, they have that like, if you seen like the little ball thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's not like a full out turban. That's like, but it's, it's still considered appropriate. Like, and, but. Yeah, in the traditional, I guess, in traditional Sikh culture historically, um, men would cover their hair with turbans. Some women would, would wear turbans, but most were the Junis. So that's something like, but, but so I, they are initiated. So my, so like my, there's initiated Sikh women in my family. So they also keep a kirpan on them. They have a kara on them. They follow all the rites. But, it, but, but, but one of the five Ks isn't uh, a, uh, a keeping a turban, right? It's just keeping long hair. Keeping uncut hair, yeah. Yeah, so uncut hair. So it, it, then how, it, can you still, I mean, do you have to have a turban or you just have to keep your hair uncut? Uh, so you have to keep your hair, so, okay. So you keep your hair uncut, but part of that is also you comb it and you regularly yeah. clean for it. Um, so it, it's like the, the mandatory thing is you don't cut your hair or your beard. Right. Uh, but the... But if you were to like keep it in a, a nice ponytail, well kept, would that still be considered okay or no? Uh, so like, no, I mean, so that's not like when you go to a gurdwara, you have to keep it in a turban or like right. you, have to, you have to keep it covered. Well, everyone and, has to keep their head covered anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but so, I mean, there's some Sikhs who do, I mean, even I, like right now, I'm not wearing a turban. Um, so yeah. like, I go up, but usually it's considered like you should, it's like, a, it's not as like, if you, if you, it's like something where like, if you cut your hair, that is the moment, you know, where you like, you know, breach the code of conduct. But if you were, if you don't wear a term, it's not like you're breaching the code of conduct, but sure. you're like, it's like, 
that's a strong recommendation. You keep a turban on your head. And if you, I mean, so is there an excommunication or anything like that if you cut your hair and you're? Yeah. So if you if you cut, so there's well, there's two things. So there's one is called patet. So if you break the four budget kurets, which are which are the sort of key core principles, which is you know having um, an extramarital um, affair, sexual mm -hmm. relations, extramarital, uh, smoking the hookah or um, or tobacco. Mm -hmm. um, eating halal meat or cutting your hair, um, you are a patit, which means you are like, you basically, fall. yeah, you're, you're falling. So to be, to be reinitiated, you to become a Khalsik and you need to be reinitiated and uh, excommunicated is there's a thing called Tankaya, which is, this is reserved for like people who have done heinous uh, things, individuals yeah. who have been like heinous crimes or like, you know, um, so this is something that's agreed upon by a bulk majority of six. They're excommunicated in the sense that there's a social boycott put on them. So like other cost of six are not to talk with them. Okay. That's like so, political. That's more of a political thing. Yeah. Now from dietary stance, there's um, like you said, you can't eat, you can't eat alal, alal, but you can have jetka, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, this, so this is, this is um, controversial because a lot of six, Especially in the modern age, um, there's big controversy because a lot of Sikhs believe that you should be vegetarian, lacto-vegetarian. Yeah. So that's what they believe. Like, but the traditional thing was that, yeah, you don't Sikhs do not eat halal because they they procure their meat either through hunting or through chatka, um, which is the one swipe cut and that's yeah. It. So it's it's also interesting because I mean I know you're saying modern Sikhs, but I know I've known a few uh, older Sikhi men, especially in the time when I was in Delhi, I lived there that were totally vegetarian, right? They're, they they wouldn't eat any sort of meat, um, um, and they weren't lacto vegan, but they would because like milk is such a big product within all Indian culture. Um, but they just wouldn't eat meat, um, and, and, and they thought it was actually antithetical to Sikhism to have meat. But you know, there's a lot of apparently a lot of con uh, con not controversy, but um, conversation around the role of meat within. Yeah, so so it was like so there was a period. So there's some always been some six sects who have been vegetarian, lacto vegetarian, like that. Yeah. Lunger is also lacto vegetarian, so you won't yeah. find me served in the Sikh temple. Um, but like, it, it's sort of now there's more historical awareness because around five, I would say like even a ten years ago, if you said you know six can eat meat like theologically that would make a huge you know there'd be a huge uproar and it right. was a very common um belief that six could not eat in the 80s 90s um, like my father growing up he was a he was an initiated sick he ate meat because he he was very like into the research he researched a lot of the history about sure. it and like a, a lot of other six were like why are you eating meat like a lot of because he was the only one he knew at the time in punjab which is like a big thing um but like now there's more historical awareness. People are going to the roots of it, the historical texts. They're seeing um, the traditions maintained by the Nahangs, who are like a traditional warrior group who have maintained a lot of the old traditions that were otherwise lost. Yeah. Is, okay. The, the restrict, even when my father, like everyone knows that halal is especially banned, but like, um, but yeah. So this is a new thing that's arising, this consciousness of meat, chatka meat eating. Like chatka, right. you said the word like, 10 years ago among a lot of six circles they'd be like that's that's you know that's a bs word um, but now there's like awareness of it right um, happening and then you guys you can't like you said you can't smoke any sort of tobacco yeah um and then no alcohol from what i understand also yeah, right? yeah, yeah. 
But I mean, it, 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 alcoholism is pretty, or not alcoholism, but alcohol for a lot of Indians and Sikhs included is part of their, their lifestyle. Yeah, it's a part, so it's an interesting duality, I guess. Yeah. Where alcohol is sort of banned. I mean, so tobacco and, and smoking is particularly like very strongly admonished. Right. Um, to, to, alcohol is also banned, but it's, I guess not as culturally prohibited. Um, for there's a lot of like varying historical reasons, I guess, for that. Sure. Um, but yeah, so it's it is this interesting duality, uh, I, I think, where you know it's it's technically prohibited, but a lot of six do end up drinking. Right. Um, they're known for they have, they have that reputation and all. But <laughs> that's but, right. <laughs> um, but that's why the more religious, like the sons and all, like a lot of the like, that's why a lot of the, what they do is a lot of their appeals are, you know, to get the youth or to get people to stop drinking and stop these, you know, vices sure. or well, what they consider vices that are otherwise present in the, amongst sick populations. Sure. So, uh, and I guess I'll just have a few more questions. I know we've been going for a while, but just a couple mm -hmm. more questions. And then uh, I know you got, it's late, you got stuff to do. Um, so in the philosophical side, do, do the, do, is the Sikh philosophy have, a sort of creation process? Is it like, you know, from, you know, like in terms of Sankhya yoga, you know, like from Purusha Prakriti, and then if you, if you know this coming down to like, the, you know, the, the great elements and then the, the gunas, do they have their own kind of uh, uh, creation cycle or is that kind of just left ambiguous so you can take whatever you want? Um, so that's kind of, I guess there's not, it's not like a strong part of the theology because the philosophy is focused more on practice than uh -huh. it's like orthopraxic more than orthodoxic. Okay. Um, but like traditionally six believe in like metaphysics. Um, the tri a lot of six would, I guess, believe in traditional dharmic metaphysics, or at least in terms of like rebirth, which is like the rebirth cycle sure. and, and that. But um, in terms of creation process, um, that one, I think there's some mention in Gurbani about it, but it's also taken a more literary review. That's not like a, it's not a pressing concern for sure. Us, and, I mean, and, and have they, do they have their own kind of understanding of like how reincarnation and karma works? Or again, uh, is, is that kind of uh, left ambiguous? So reincarnation is, you know, it's, it's done, it's, the, the cores are the same. Um, I think the one thing is that the it is believed that karma is not like it's not it doesn't apply it applies to the human level mm -hmm. so like the luck june like the the multiple lives you get to have a human life it, it's apply, applicable at the human level not just you know at the any human is at any human regardless of caste or whatever is attainable is potentially able to attain that salvation not just you know one group but so, i mean that might be i mean i know there's a lot of hindu traditions that also have that oh, view yeah I mean, I, all hindu traditions have that view um and the only demarcation would be the more orthodox ones would say that the vedas and upanishads are restricted to the, the brahmana vesha and Kshatriya groups um but uh, everyone is open to moksha now this is actually like interesting to me if you care. This is the a conversation within Advaita Vedanta of Shankara, which he believes that women probably don't achieve moksha because women and shudras because of that. But um, that's most of the other traditions have the different viewpoint, which anyone can receive moksha or mukti. 
um, based upon you know studying other scriptures, Mahabharata, Ramayana, Puranas, and 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 following a certain uh, praxis, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, so that way it would be very similar. Now, is there now what is the view of how people even or how beings got caught up in this samsara of sorts? Like the what's the person? Uh, sorry. The origin of it, or yeah, what's the or? Uh, do they postulate an origin, or do they say what the purpose of this entire uh, cycle is? And like, and so I mean, like in the Hindu context, we could call it a lila. Like we have a sense of Nirguna Brahman, um, but that Nirguna Brahman is viewed and becomes Sakuna through Maya. But in fact, all beings are already free; they just have to recognize it. Is that what the, the viewpoint of the of the Sikhis would be? Yeah, so I guess, so the Sikhi view is that there is Paramatma, which is basically the, the great, you know, the, mm-hmm. the divine. And so the view is that each individual has an Atma. Yeah. And the only way to, you know, merge the Atma with the Paramatma is through the human life in which you can do spiritual meditation, meditation and all that sense to get that merging. So I'm not sure if that's similar. Um, well, I mean, so I, I guess the question would be is, again, this is like, these are the, the philosophical ontological uh, differences between the various schools in India. I mean, in, in Hindu thought, like, is Paramatma and Chivatma the same? Are they different? Is it only illusory difference? Or is it real difference? I mean, so when you say merge, like within the Sikhi tradition, does that mean that your Atma retains its individuality? Or is that individuality a product of Maya? I mean, so those are. Oh, the- okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I think so. Individualities. So, I, I'm not like that well versed on philosophy of that sorts, but I know what you're referring to. Yeah. In, the individuality is an illusion in this context. Okay. It is an illusion of Maya because, in reality, the Atma. So, attaining Mukti of some sort breaks away the illusion of. Um, of the duality, I guess, I, I, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, no, no, that makes sense. Okay. I, I, I mean, but these are like the issues that what that duality means is very important within the Indian philosophical context. Right? No, yeah, and I, I think there are texts that, this is one thing that I probably want to get into more later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are texts that engage with this in great detail, and they actually do use Vedanta concepts, a lot of this. Right intellectuals they use Vedanta concepts to even contextualize these um, these philosophical ontological questions um, yeah, but I, just, I'm, I haven't really I'm, engaged with them in great depth um, no I'm very interested because of the bhakti movement right within that that was playing around at the same time as Nanak um, how much of like you know either the bhakti movement from the south and their philosophical ideas influenced uh, you know Nanak and the philosophy of Sikhism, or did it become much more Advaitic in how it approached uh, the the philosophy? What I mean by Advaitic is I mean like Shankara's Advaita. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, so that one, yeah, that one, I probably can't give you the best answer for because okay. I mean, these are these are these are terms like I've, I've come across, but I've never really done a deep dive into because I, I know some of my friends who are, you know, they're very versed in this kind of stuff. And they're, this, they're very, they're very interested in this kind of stuff. And they do actually read those texts. Right, um, the the Advaitic text, texts and all to to contextualize. It's just maybe something I'm not as familiar with. Sure. Now, and and, and just a final question here before you know we end. What 
what is the relationship within Sikhism between what they would see as the Vedic texts, the Puranas, Mahabharata, the Vedas, and uh, their tradition? Is it supplementary or is it just not looked at at all? So the view held is that the, 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 so the, guru, the, guru, the gurus often wrote that the, the, what the Vedas is, it's, it's a continuous stream of thought. Mm-hmm. To the Guru Granth Sahib. Uh, what the Guru Nanak said was all that can be found in the Vedas can be found through the teachings of the Guru. So that is the Sikh view. So the Sikh view is that, you know, someone who's reading the Vedas, someone who's interpreting the Vedas um, versus someone who's reading the Guru Granth Sahib, they're on the same path. But, you know, for Sikhs, it's like, it's not like, you know, the, the Granth is a supplementary text to the Vedas. It's like the Granth is the distilled form, I guess, the crystallized form of yeah. what's you know essential for six to read in from the Vedas. That makes sense. No, that makes sense. And, 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 and but a lot of six do. I mean, so a lot of six do though. Even that's something I'm trying to get to. They've historically you know read the Vedas to supplement their yeah. view of, of. So that was a part of the Nirmala teaching and all that. Okay. Yeah. And then I guess my final question would be, how do the the Sikhis view other traditions? Do they think that other traditions can have Mukti following their path or is Sikhi the path the way to Mukti? So, so this is, I mean, so I think the Guru said, it's an interesting question um, because the Guru definitely, he definitely delineates like there's some things that he says will not get you Mukti. Like he said, if you just blindly do this ritual, right? Then mm-hmm. there's no, there, you will not attain Mukti through blindly doing this ritual. Um, but is, there is the idea of like the fact that mukti is not tied to the sixth spiritual tradition alone, um, right? So some of these differences are that are different between like Sikhism and different philosophical traditions, mm-hmm. they're not different in saying that, oh, Sikhs alone get mukti. They're differences in the sense that, okay, the Sikhs, Sikhs believe that this is the more efficient way to get mukti while also, you know, like, so for example, the yogis. I don't think the Guru is actually saying that the that's one of the key points I think in Sid Ghost in his dialogue with those yogis is that he's not saying those yogis won't get mukti. He's saying that okay, this ascetic lifestyle isn't needed for mukti. Right. Um, so you can also get mukti through living this household life. So that's the contention. That's like there's a lot of so there's there's a, also a dialogue with the Guru. So a lot of the differences are it's not in the sense of like an Abrahamic sense where like yeah. it's you fall it's if you fall this you will not get it. Um, but it's it's like these are philosophical differences, but they're more like differences in methodologies and practices than you know different than like a different. Okay, if you don't follow this worldview, you are doomed. Even the concept of tisrapant, right? It's a more. It's not the. It's not the view isn't. If you're not part of tisrapant, you are nothing. It's it's more of okay. This is the third path. This is what six believe to be the best path. This is what six follow. Um, but six at the time they also had dialogues with other groups because there is the belief that you know. Right. You don't have to follow the Sikh religious um, worldview specifically to get looked at. Um, so, so I, I, sorry, I have one last question, then we'll, we'll, we'll end it. What do you think are the big challenges right now facing the Sikhi community in terms of either practice or, or theology or just their existence? What, what do you think is really the issues that are uh, affecting the community that way? Um, I think, well, I think one big thing is that, you know, six, we have to, I think right now, six in the West, we're hitting a point in which the mainstream where 
we've distilled our religion as sort of just being, oh, you know, our religion, Sikhism is just be a good person, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, we believe in all the, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're a Muslim, be a good Muslim. If you're Hindu, be a good Hindu. We believe in all religion. Uh, uh, we're just, you know, we love giving free food. These very, like, you know, these, these sort of, um, I, I want to say, it's like tasty tidbits for, right. you know, like the secular humanitarian uh, paradigm. And so I think six, the, the biggest challenge, one of the biggest things to me is six need to start, you know, engaging with the faith at a more deeper level, right? Like asking these sort of questions, I think, you know, questions that challenge, not just the standard, like, okay, if, if, if the guru really said, you know, if he really didn't believe in like having, you know, in, in creating, why would, he, why, would even, why would there even need, be a need for a new religion right. or religious ideology? So I think that's one of the big issues. Um, and that from that, there's a lot of stuff that spills over. Like there's um, like six, for example, like one thing is absurd is that six really saying six don't believe in converting other people, which is true in the sense that we don't believe in like converting people, like going out and saying, okay, please like, you know, convert. Yeah, proselytization. Yeah, right. proselytization. But there is a Sikh view of Parjar, which means like, you know, six, like they go out and they want to teach others about Sikhi. They want others to embrace the views of Nanak if it so suits them. Because um, like I saw like one day someone was saying like he went to a Gurdwar to learn about Sikhi and someone told him, oh, don't, don't go here. Just follow your own religion. Just be a good person. It's like, <laughs> like, like and I guess, you know, the, I think the biggest problem is that Sikhism in the modern century, in the modern time is that it's like it's just become a Punjabi ethnic faith. When in reality, it's this philosophy that appeals to a lot of even the cause of the social order that can appeal to a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds. Right. Sikh philosophy can appeal to even have a broader reach outside of the culture. So um, these are some of the things I would think, just redefining how, what we think of this. Yeah, I mean. Simplistic I, narrative, otherwise simplistic narrative. I think, I mean, that's something I've noticed with the community is it's a very Punjabi jut uh, yeah. focus right now as opposed to large. And most of the, and to be honest, most of the, the Sikhis that I've known don't know anything close to what you know what you've talked about. They just have, you know, they just they just follow. They're, they're again, maybe this is because the focus is very much on practice as opposed to like uh, knowledge in, in within the larger community. Which I I get many ways. Hindu community is very much also at fault too, right? Because we do the same thing. We just know you do this puja, you do that puja, you go to this temple, and you're good. Yeah. Um, as opposed to having a larger or not a larger, but a more intimate relationship with uh, the tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, is there anything you think that we missed or you want to, to say uh, before we close out? Um, no, I just wanted to say thank you so much. Um, this was a pretty good talk. And, you know, I, I really, I will definitely be hitting you up more as I, I want to, you know, learn more about other religious traditions too, to sort of just expand my own knowledge. You know, you, I love like learning, you know, these, these little, um, I think oh. this is a good example of exactly what I was saying earlier, where like Twitter is good for the networking, but now there's a need to go beyond the Twitter. And so I, I, I love the conversation. I would definitely, you know, um, yeah, I, 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 I learned so day. much, Ben. I mean, there's so much I don't know, like about, about, about Sikhism. I like, again, I probably know just as much as an average Sikhi about their tradition in like large, large chunks, but I really want to get into to, like the nitty gritties of, how they view the world and how they view the tradition and how they like their philosophy because 500 years of, of existence must build a wealth 
of knowledge and ideas and it's just it's probably super fascinating and i want to learn more about it but yeah no no and i definitely i would love like to talk in the future and i really enjoy this opportunity this yeah man thank you thank you um let's keep in touch and you know we'll I'll, we'll have you back on sometime and we'll, we'll go forward Definitely. Thank you so much. And be safe, dude. And you and your family be safe during the coronavirus. Yes, yes be safe. Yeah. And keep keep all that. Uh, you, know, you know. Hopefully, your parents are your parents are doing well. And yeah, we we celebrated Masaki at home. So good. Good. Yeah. But, um, happy Yamuna tire gayati vanamali gayati